Detective Somerset. I'm Detective Mills. Lieutenant, I apologize for interrupting you. Just getting down 20 minutes ago, they dumped me here. Look, um, Mills, I thought we might find a bar someplace, you know. Well, I'd like to get to the precinct. It's all the same. You know, not much time for this transition thing. I meant to ask you something. When we spoke on the phone before? Yep. Why here? I don't follow. Well, all this has to get transferred. It's the first question that popped into my head. I guess it's the same reasons as you. The same reasons you had before you decided to quit, yeah? You, you just met me. Maybe I'm not understanding the question. Very simple. You actually fought to get reassigned here. I've just never seen it done that way before. I thought I could do some good. Look, it would be great for me if we didn't start out kicking each other in the ball. You're calling the shots, Lieutenant. Yes. I want you to look, and I want you to listen, okay? Now, I wasn't standing around guarding the Taco Bell. I've worked homicide five years. Not here. I understand that. Well, over the next seven days, Detective, you'll do me the favor of remembering that. Welcome to the Film Effect Podcast, where we take all things film to the full effect. My name's Ed. Next to me is my cinematic life mate and everyday center, Sean. Good morning, Film Effect. And joining us this week is the glue to our Goodfellas crew, Kids and Heroes, Mr. Justin Boyd is here. Hello, hello. So here's the skinny. If you happen to be a fellow cinephile like us, or just a casual fan of film in general, then you've come to the right place. We're weekly podcasts that do deep dives and touch lives of each and every single episode, focusing on a particular film each week in an effort to give it the full film effect treatment. But before we reveal what's in the box, I want to let you guys know that our ever-growing collection of previous episodes can be found on our website, podpage.com slash d-film-effect-podcast, as well as all major platforms, direct link in the episode notes. Speaking of platforms, you can help this show tremendously by using Apple Podcasts or wherever possible to leave a five-star rating and review. It helps us with that fickle algorithm, and it recommends us to more listeners as we continue to grow as both a show and a community, because we believe you guys as family, and not that Vin Diesel variety either. In the meantime, Sean, Facebook and Instagram. The Film Effect Podcast. Twitter. At Film Effect Pod. Email. The Film Effect Podcast at gmail.com. Fabulous, sir. You passed the test. Thank you. All right. So how how's uh how you guys doing? Back to school. I know Justin can relate. It was a bitch of a day, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean this all the school stuff went okay actually. I'm not happy to be back in the schedule. Um, you know, I, I wish I could uh, relate. Uh, no, my day was a nightmare. My my daughter had a bus hiccup earlier, and I had to go pick her up. Oh, I saw there's a problem with buses. Yeah, 
I, Dude, I, I got there and I thought there was a shooting or something. Mm. I read like a bunch of bus drivers called out of work. They strained like 300 kids today. And they couldn't, uh, like, I think they were like shortchanged to begin with. Like they couldn't hire people. They, they've been trying to fill spots and just hadn't been able to. So like the drivers are trying to like double and triple up, I guess. So yeah, it looks like it's a, it's a nightmare. I mean, it, it was crazy. Wait for Max, the, the two older kids, you know, either drive themselves or have rides with friends. And Max, I just take right up the street. So, you know, knock on wood, we have it. We have it pretty easy in that regard. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I wish I could say the same. Like, I got to the school to pick her up, and like, I, I thought that it was like an event or something because like every single parent in Perry Hall was there to pick up their kids. And I asked my daughter what happened, and she's like, "No, it's the first day of school." I'm like, "Everyone turns up like this on the first day of school? God damn!" <laughs> it was a lot. Oh. Yeah, I mean, Seriously. even my kids were like excited to get back this year, which. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I was excited to go back some years too. I don't know. I always thought that like kids didn't like going back to school, but I was always happy to go back until I got back. <laughs> and then I was like, all right, yeah, take maybe me, that's take me I... back this summer. Yeah, but... you. you oh, I I look forward to showing off my fresh gear. Yeah, yeah. that that exactly. Yeah, you know, I I look I look forward to you know third period theater arts class with this chucklehead. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that was always the highlight of my day. Yeah, that was a fun class. Yeah, good times for sure. So, uh, I guess uh, Sean, you can stay out of this one. We got uh, football coming up in two weeks. Are you doing any fantasy this year? Yeah, I'm. I'm just doing one through work, and I'll probably be half-hearted that. I'm just not into it like I used to be, which is a shame right. because my oldest is now super into it, and like. When I tried to get him into it, he wasn't interested. Now, like, I'm less interested when he's super into it. So we just never really been able to hook, like, get it together. But we are going to uh, a Ravens game in November. So that'll be fun. I'm going to the season opener week two yeah. against the Chiefs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Makes... Yep. Yeah, <laughs> of course. I would, I would right. have figured you'd have had, when I saw that they were open, I'd, I had a feeling you were going to get your happy ass down to M&T Stadium. Is this your first time getting to see them, uh, getting to see the Chiefs play? In person? No, my, it'll be my second. Second, okay. I, I saw them play back in 2015 when they came to Baltimore. Okay, okay. Okay, so I know you're a huge Chiefs fan. I just didn't know if you... So I'm not going to lie to you, man. I've, I've, never, I've never been to M&T Bank Stadium. I've, I've been to one professional NFL game my entire life. That's when I lived in Atlanta when... Um, the, it was a. I went to the Atlanta Dome, the Georgia Dome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Georgia Dome. That's right, the Georgia Dome. As a, we're we're talking, this was would have been ninety four, ninety five. I remember because it was the the first game of the season, and it was the North. It was the Carolina Panthers inaugural debut in the NFL. Like that was the first year. Ever had it. Oh, nice. Yeah, that, so that that was kind of cool. But I'm, you know, you guys know, I'm not, I'm not a sports guy. Um, so yeah, it's the one only NFL game I've ever had. Mandy keeps wanting to get me to go because her, and, you know, her her parents are, are, are big Ravens fans. I mean, mm-hmm. I do it for the social aspect, you know. But I I don't keep track of that shit. You guys are. I don't know how you guys do the fantasy, like you know, the stats, who to play, who not to play. <laughs> yeah, like, I used to it enjoy it, but like it stresses me out so much that 
or like it got to a point where it would stress me out so much that I couldn't enjoy any game that I was watching because I was more worried about my fantasy team. So, and that's where I would take a, you know, that was where I would take away, take away from too, man. Like how you suppose if you like if you enjoy the Sunday afternoon ritual, you're taking that away from yourself because now you're all you're bouncing back and forth between you know games and yeah uh, channels and ESPN apps, tracking your shit and moving your guys around. Like I don't know. It just, it always escapes. Yeah, I didn't do any last year. I just watched games, and it was no stress and much less, uh, much more enjoyable. But I got sucked. At, not sucked. I, you know, I am willfully doing one, but that's it. And I'm not going to take it super seriously. I don't need the stress. Yeah, I did one last year. I'm actually doing three this year, including <laughs> one with the guys on the different podcasts, like uh, the, oh, the crew from Best Film Ever. I'm in one their league. And yeah, a couple of cool. uh, Paul and Griff and um, F and Nerds. Uh, should be a fun time. Uh, we had the draft yesterday. And uh, eh, yeah, it's okay. I- I'd say of the three drafts, it's for fun too. So I don't really take it that seriously. Yeah. But but the other two that I'm in, you know, I it's for real, for money and whatnot. But uh, right. one's a dynasty. One's uh, my typical uh, annual season with the guys. And um I'm happy. You know, I'm ready for it. So, once it actually starts in a couple of weeks, once football starts, like week one goes into effect, then it hits me. Like the shit right. is on. Here we go. So, give me a couple of weeks, and I'll be more like into it. I mean, I'm into it, but give me a couple of weeks. So, I can't get excited for preseason football. I've tried. No, like never, I've tried for never. the longest time, and I just I can't do it. Nah, exactly. Um. Can we please talk about Jake Paul and this boxing shit? <laughs> Does it, do either of you two know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know. Like, I saw he fought again. Like, I, I I, couldn't tell you. I haven't watched a boxing match in probably 20 years. I, I just, I don't, I know he boxes, but I, like, I've, I've never actually seen him box, so. I mean, I think the writing's on the wall here. Like, I think what he's doing is building himself up to eventually face Tyson. I think his game plan is to wait for Tyson to be, like, 70 and then challenge him to like you know an exhibition match um so i got i i i gotta say something here because i've heard of this chucklehead because you know i see shit come oh he's a piece of fucking work let me tell you so again we all know i think you know you guys both know i think all the listeners know now i'm not i am not a sports guy casual passing at best wasn't this fucker like a YouTube celebrity or something? And just it goes sp- before that. He he was a um back. They had a vine. He was a viner back when vinyl was a thing about six, seven, eight years ago. You fucking kids and your my books and your face spaces and your, <laughs> you know Twitter grams. It was Vine, and then it was uh, I guess TikTok, and then it was Facebook, and not Facebook, uh, YouTube, and it's that's where it is, and now. I mean, the Jake photos have pretty much branched off and done the whole boxing thing, both late Jake and uh, uh, his brother Logan. Um, like I mean, trolls, I can't, right? Aren't, or is, you know, they're huge like trolls. Yeah, they're huge trolls. Um, it's questionable whether or not these matches are legit or if they're rigged. I mean, I, I would assume they're real, but it's just well, funny to me that they're challenging like these has-beens and kicking their asses and exhibition it. Like, you just do a floyd mayweather thing logan did and he actually hung for like eight yeah. rounds i saw that. these th- these two douche novels are fucking interchangeable to me i could give two shits 
about what the hell the next the next they're gonna do in in in, in their future internet endeavors. What the shit? Good for you. Let's move on. Yeah. And speaking of moving on, uh, attention, these idiots. Uh, so I guess, uh, as you guys know, I've, I've been to the theater a few times lately. Um, I guess I can utilize this uh, time to just give an update on how you know the, the state of the Cineplex is. And since I had a bird's eye view of it for the last few weeks myself, uh, renewing my AMC A list account. Um, I don't know. I, I I feel fine going back to theaters. I'm not skeptical, you know. There was a moment when I saw uh, Don't Breathe 2, and I was in the back row by myself, and this dude comes in like 20 minutes into the movie, and all the rows in the back, all the empty seats, he sits directly to my left, and I'm like, are you shitting me? <laughs> it was the most awkward thing ever, and it's like, how do I handle this? Do I say something? Do I get up and just notice we leave? We're coming out of like, you know, a pandemic and shit. And it's like, you have all the rows in the world. It wasn't even a small theater. It was a big one. And literally, it was only myself in the back. You know how I do. I go by myself most of the theater. Yeah. movies. And the guy just comes in 20 minutes into the movie. I know he just fucking walked in. He didn't buy a ticket. Plopped down next to me and I'm like, this shit. Thank God he didn't like do anything noticeably like loud or annoying. He kept really fucking quiet, actually. Yeah, so you're a better man than me, dude. I would I would have done some shit to freak him out, piss him off, and send him running for the hills. I'd have just started coughing right in his ear, like leaning in towards him and facing him and coughing at him. Well, I just felt like looking at him and being like, "You're on my side of the armrest. We're not gonna have a problem, are we?" <laughs> I don't know why you didn't speak up. You're like, you can move one over, pal. The film's going to look just the same from over there. Yeah. I went, so. I went a couple weeks ago to the Charles, with, you know, and being yeah, in Charles. Yeah, being in the city, though, they had the mask mandate down there. So I had to watch that movie with a mask. Like, you didn't have to wear a mask at White Marsh, right? No, no, no. There's no right, mask right. mandate. Yeah, no. So in the city, they have the mask mandate. So we had to wear masks while we watched the movie. And I got to tell you, like, what'd you see? Uh, that Fellini movie, Juliet of the Spirits. Okay. Like a restored version. Fucking magnificent, right. by the way. But um, I was, was going to say, you recommend it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. High, highest recommendation. It was fucking awesome. Just, it, even if you don't like foreign movies, like, turn the sound off and just look at it. It's like one of the most beautiful looking movies ever made. Hey man, Portrait of a Lady on File, one of my favorite films, twenty nineteen. I, I uh, keep, yeah, I keep wanting to see that. I gotta, I gotta get around, not get around to it, but just do it. It's like, a beautiful Portrait, movie. It's on Amazon, right? It's on Hulu. Hulu, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, yeah, I'm gonna check it out. Cool, cool. Were you gonna say something else? I don't, know, I don't even remember what we we're talking about. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, since since you, I thought you and Justin were talking about the same movie. I was like, well, Ed saw Don't Breathe in the theater, and Justin saw Can't Breathe in the theater. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's what we were talking yeah. about. Yeah, no, it, and like, I'm, you know, I'm lucky enough to work from home all day. I'm kind of like, you know, the people to go out in the world, it's like, suck it up and wear the mask. After sitting there for two hours like that, I get why people are pissed off. Like, it was not, it was a drag watching the movie that way. I got to be honest. No, I was I was relieved. Uh, we we actually went to the state fair with her parents yesterday, and I was I did. Uh, if there was a mask mandate, I wasn't going to go, you know. But it was. But between her and and Ed, they're like, you need to get your ass up, get out of the damn house, 
you know, get some vitamin D. So I sucked it up and slept it around the fair and actually made my, you know, made my face known in public for the first time in months. Yeah. I mean, being outside is different. Like, you know, not wearing a mask outside to me isn't such a big deal. I mean, if you're going to be packed together, maybe throw one on. But, like, I, and I still, I still don't have a problem with, with people that want to mandate it. But, it is a drag. Like I, I understand for the first time what a drag it is. I only did it for like two hours, you know. So hey, I, I have I have to wear one for eight hours a day, five yeah, days a week. Out. That's so that's, that's I, I fucking miserable. It so, sucks, but I deal with it. What Walmart has you guys wearing them? Like mandatory staff has to wear masks. Even we went years. back. We went back to it the day my birthday was actually the first day they they, they put it back into effect for us. Jesus Christ! Because apparently, apparently, Hartford County's numbers are like. Through the roof, right? I, I I definitely get it. I'm just saying it's a fucking drag. I get that too. Yeah. So it is what it is. In the meantime, just some shout out. Shout out to his family. All right, here we go. Best film ever. Film floggers. The effing nerds. Josh, your next favorite movie. Paul and Griff. Welcome back, fellas. And the verbal diorama. Kids, what are we watching tonight? The good, the bad, and the sequel. Saturday Night Freak Show. Geek verse. Horror queers. Cult classic horror show. Welcome back. Also. Backlook Cinema, Spy Hards, Recapping Down, finally, Halloweenies. We love each and every one of you for all you do to keep us entertained and interested. Give each one a follow by checking out our Twitter page. Hey, Sean, what's that handle again? Uh, at Film Effect Pod. Thanks again, buddy. Uh, we're currently charting in the top 200 in Thailand. That's it. And we have new regions, though. And. New Zealand and Saudi Arabia. So shout out and welcome to the party, pal. Alright, just record events. Alright, fellas. Talk about Spider-Man No Way Home. Alright. Thoughts? I think we've um, all seen the trailer. Intrigue. Yep. I mean, I was, I, I'm anxious for, you know, my main it's man, Supreme, to get the back. Worst kept secret. Worst kept secret in Hollywood, but go on. <laughs> I, I'm anxious to see my main man, Sorcerer Supreme, get back into action on the big screen since Endgame, because we all know I'm a huge Doctor Strange fan. The fact that he's kind of stepping in as a new mentor and treatment. Now, granted, you know, a multiverse was, you know, hinted at towards the end of WandaVision and then fully established by the finale of Loki. Now we see how it all gets all fucked up. And um, I actually saw something today. Apparently, I don't know how true this is, but I saw somebody had uh, tweeted a photo, a recent photo of them with Tobey Maguire in New York City. From, on top of the car and the subway, not the subway, yeah, the bridge scene on the trailer. Yeah, just some dude on the street, like just some fan, just like you know, took a picture with Toby McGuire and you know, tweeted it. And he he said he asked him if he was in town for No Way Home, and McGuire just smiled and winked at him. So, like you said, worst kept secret in Hollywood. I mean, we all know Alfred Molina's back is Otto Octavius based on the finale of that trailer. He flat out said it like a year ago. He's like, uh, "Oh yeah, I'm in that. I had a blast on set. Can't I, wait to do another." The one who blew it. Like, didn't they get mad at him? Like, he's the one who kind of spilled the beans. Well, Kevin could, Feige probably had the most puckered butthole after reading that fucking interview. 
he he confirmed it. It had been rumored for a bit, but the first confirmation you got was was Molina doing an interview um, for something else. But he talked about how cool it was to step back into right. slip back into right. the trench. Hello, Peter. You know, it started way it started way way back with Jamie Fox with that like cast breaking announcement back when pre production was going on, and news broke that Jamie Fox was part of the cast, and it was like, oh, Electro, okay, intrigued. Yeah. And then Molina was like, oh, yeah, I mean, it had a blast. Can't wait for another one. And it's like, okay, well, shit, we know what's going on here. I Which think I, one it, 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 it retros what Sony did into the current you know, universe and like, in a way to keep it canon. I think that was smart. Um, I wish, you know, I, it looks like we're getting closer, but I, but I wish both Sony and Disney would, you know, get off of their mountains of money and just agree to, you know, ink a 4951 split or something just to just to make it all fucking happen instead of dancing around it like this. Like, okay, you get three films and then we might never ever acknowledge all this again. Like, you know, nah, that's bullshit. We'll get more. I know, I know, but I mean the fact that, you know, they licensed, you know, Tom Holland's Spider Man for five movie for a five movie limit. Well well two I, two things. No, two things. Number one, um, if this were truly the final film and there were no more after these three pictures, then this would have to be the longest freaking comic book film in the, the ever to just wrap up all the stories. To, to, if this is it, then they got so much shit they got to wrap up. It's going to be like twice the length of Endgame. Um, and my other point it, is like real quick... Um, I, I think this is the new wave of comic book series. Can't we just all agree on that one? Because we got DC doing the same thing over there with the Flash film. You know, we're just bringing back the past from all the, you know, all these incarnations, uh, you know, inspirations of, of, of these characters and stuff. It's all coming together. Like, Marvel's doing it. DC's doing it. I, I guess this is the new wave of uh, comic book films. You got to do something different to, you know, keep the fans intrigued. Keep them coming back. Otherwise, it's going to run stale. So we're bringing about people from like, you know, 20, 30 years ago. It, it's great for us, you know, riding that nostalgia train. Well, yeah. I mean, I was never a big fan of retconning, but in this case it works, you know, so I'll agree with you there. I mean, what I would, what I would like to see and, and, you know, I doubt it's going to happen because it would have been spoiled by now is some sort of cameo appearance from Spider-Man in both Venom and, and Morbius. But, you know, there's still, well, like, they're playing coy on that. We right. might, we might get something about those. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Stay tuned. I'd say there's still time to fucking to get get Tom Holland for a four day weekend and just film a bunch of scenes and throw in some pickup shots. You know what I mean? For both, yeah, I was I was thinking about it at work yesterday. I, I I think Morbius has been pushed back like six times now. And, you know, I'm intrigued about it. You know, I don't even know when the hell it comes out anymore. I'm I lost. Know, me, neither. me neither. I mean, we talked before how, how like, I'm just a huge fan of what Tom Hardy's doing, like, how he's embracing the range for, you know, Eddie Brock and Venom. So, like, I'm really looking forward to, you know, Let There Be Carnage. But, the you know, I've known about, you know, Morbius a Living Vampire for a while. The fact that he's getting a little bit of spotlight, it's, it's you know, a unique like niche comic book character that, that that I think has a market, um, 
you know, I think Leto could do some promising work with it, but I want to see it get folded into the universe, not just be its own little kind of standalone to like how Leto's Joker role in that first Suicide Squad was. It was like kind of one and done and okay, that was a misstep. We won't, you know, outside of this cameo at the end of Snyder's Justice League, we're not going to make him canon. Mm-hmm. You know? So I, I, I want to see the, I'd lo- I want to see it all thread. And now is, you know, it, and it, we will soon enough. You know, at the end of the day, it's 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 rights holders and multi, you know, mega conglomeration, billion dollar, you know, corporations that are that are standing in the way of the fans. At the end of the day, the fans will put those monies in your pockets. We're the ones that wrap. We, the- we don't have to wait that much longer. So you know, it's all coming soon. Christmas is right around the corner, and that's when this film is finally coming out. Yeah, so that's what honestly. So, like, I was a little pissed that that you know I was a little confused as to like I'm curious to why, you know, he's now got the um the uh the uh the the Parker of levitation, if you will. Why is it fucking snowing in the Sanctum Santorum? I'm sure all questions. And why is he why is he wearing a sweatshirt too? He's in sweatpants a Parker, but he's still got his cloak of levitation on. So that's cool to me, you know. Um. I, so uh, again, I, I, I'm I'm going into this thing mainly because I, I'm I'm seriously probably going to cosplay as fucking Doctor Strange. I'm going to save up for my costume because we already got the fucking mm. thing, the hair and the goddamn necklace. So why not just go full forward with it? Um, <laughs> it sets us up for March because I I hate to say it, but I am really looking forward. To the multiverse of madness. I mean, it's my boy back on the big screen front in another film, and it's Sam Raimi doing a full-on fucking Marvel horror movie. So that's going to be a fun time too. And we don't have much longer to go for that, unless it gets pushed back. <laughs> I don't see that happening. A lot of these pushbacks because of the pandemic. I mean, it's when's that coming out again? Uh, like second or third week of March. Jesus like that's not long after spider-man yeah it's only a couple months but yeah, I thought yeah. it was next summer no nah, no it's 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 late late winter early spring yeah it's March. i was surprised that it's that early because it's kind of the tail end of the dumping ground but that you know doesn't that doesn't sway me one way or the other you better believe i'll be there with my, you know i have agamato around my neck lit up the whole time before we move on real quick i just want to also uh Say uh, rest in peace to Edward Asner, who passed yeah. away yesterday. Yep. Lou Grant. Yeah, it'd be a travesty if we didn't mention that. So, that being That's said, Lee Scratch Perry can't leave Lee Scratch yeah, Perry. Yeah, Lee Perry, definitely, definitely Lee Scratch Perry. True. That's right. That's right. Yep. Yeah, yep. I saw Mike D posted about that. I forgot all about yep. that shit. Yeah. Well, to both, That's sky high. That being said. Do some weekly recommends. What would you get for a six-year-old boy who chronically wets his bed? I'll start because I watched Rain Man yesterday morning for the first time in like 20 years. Let me tell you, that's a fucking good movie, guys. What was last time? Rain Man. Oh, Rain Man. I thought you said Main Man. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Oh, Rain, <laughs> no, Rain, no, 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 Rain Man. Yeah, yeah, no, I got you. I, Rain Man, I, I fucking love Rain Man. Like, I haven't yeah, watched I, I had since finish. high school. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's, it hasn't been that long, but it's been a while. But that's one of those movies, that, like, in the 
probably like three or four years after it came out, I probably watched it, you know, 15, 20 times at least, if not more. Like I've seen that movie. It, you know, it's one of those movies where I can quote the dialogue as we go along. I've seen it so many times. Yeah, I mean, so I, good. So I, good. I remember going to the theater, dad and I went and saw it and you know, it was getting obviously it was getting talked up. It was, you know, Hoffman won the award. And at that time, it was like, you know, hometown boy made good. You know, it was Barry Levinson. Yeah, you know, right. Yep, yep, exactly. He's at the end as, as, the, as the therapist. You know, so that was always, you know, that's what I took away from it. Like, all right, cool. Baltimore's got a little recognition and, you know, at the Academy in Hollywood. I think it was, you know, not maybe not the first, but one of the biggest awards ever handed out to a native of our hometown. Wouldn't you mm -hmm. agree? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I know it's kind of a you know popular title, but it's something that I personally hadn't seen in a long, long time, and uh, kind of fell back in love with it because holy shit, that's 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 a four and a half star film for me all the way. Yeah, and really? uh, I, I can't, I cannot recommend it enough. Definitely four and a half. Definitely four and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Did you fucking fart, Ray? Did you fucking fart, Ray? <laughs> no fart, dude. Check it out when you're watching it. Um, the next time you watch it, uh, pay attention to Tom Cruise and the way he smokes. It is the funniest shit in the world. Like in the, I love the, the Tom scene, that movie. Like, when they're in the, when they're in the <laughs> diner, he's like playing with his cigarette in his scene. Whether he's like thinking about smoking, but it's like you know it's killing him in real life. To fucking take a drag of that cigarette because Tom Cruise, he's like the the probably. Wise person I can imagine who enjoys smoking, but he like does he, he plays of it more than he actually hits it. It's funny as shit. Yeah, Elron and Zenu tend to frown upon nicotine addiction, so it kind of goes yeah. against you know. I, I just watched Collateral for the first time the other night, and I was I'm sorry. Did you say for the first time? Because I've never seen it before. Yeah, no, first Holy time. Holy shit. Yeah, love me some collateral. Come yeah, into the podcast. Thinking, like, I, I miss Tom Cruise being an actor. Like he just it seems like all he does is Mission Impossible now. And those are cool movies, don't get me wrong, but like that's all he does now. It's he like, he's in, like be, be an actor at some point. I miss him. I thought he was a really good actor. What was what was the one he did um couple years ago? It was the true story where he was he was like the American he, Maid. American, uh, American right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was twenty seventeen like or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That was, you know, along those lines of him, you know, stepping away from, you know, temple blockbuster spectacle. Oh, know. but that was it. There was that in the Mummy, and then he went back to Mission Impossible right, the following yeah. year, and he's I done mean, nothing since. He has he has not had a film in three years. I know it's killing him. It's fucking killing him. And his next two films, they're going to be sequels: Mission Impossible Eight, no Seven, and um, um, what's the other one? Forgive me. He's Filming it. It's a sequel. Shit. What's the one he's doing in outer space? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. He's doing the way he's got the he's him and one of him and Doug Lyman filming. Uh, no, oh, I was thinking Top Gun first of all. He's got Top Gun coming out. This oh, that's right. But yeah. Um, yeah, he's got he's got a space film coming out, but I don't know anything really about it too much. They're keeping it under wraps, but they're literally flying those fuckers like him and Doug Lyman gonna film on the International Space Station. Uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise. It does not surprise me. It's Tom fucking Cruise. Not so, it, it's like, the one thing I can say, like, the Mission Impossible films, they can turn out 20 of those fucking things. As long as Tom Cruise's old ass keeps doing the fucking crazy shit he does for them films, I will keep you coming back. 
I will yeah. keep coming back. You mean like just run? That's pretty much what he he just runs. He's been doing that for forty years though. Like literally every movie. Like if you have Tom Cruise runs, Brad Pitt's. I mean, <laughs> did you watch Fallout, Sean? Yeah, I told you. Remember, I told you we had um, I, I had went kind of like I went onto your voodoo and just like started from the beginning because Mandy went into them because I hadn't seen the last two, and I didn't okay. just want to in because I knew those went hand in hand. Those were like two halves. Yeah. So I, doing it. it's, it's so weird because I hate I really do hate Rogue Nation, but then I love Fallout. I didn't mind Rogue Nation. I, I cannot mean, stand it. I thought I, it was a terrible I, film. Three is still my favorite, but that's that's mainly because I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's Owen Davian was one of the greatest cinematic badass villains ever committed to screen. Like he's up there with Arc fucking Goldfinger, in my opinion. He's just hardcore. I just it, it's it's. It's Hoffman all day for me and am I free? But I mean, I have fun with all, you know. Um, right. It's the first time in a while that they've had the same director go, you know, double dip like Brad Bird did the, what he's on the last three now, right? Brad Bird, because Brad Bird doing this one too? Yeah, uh, yeah Brad Bird's only done one of them. He just did one of them, yeah. Yeah, he just did, he just did Fallout, not Fallout. He just did, um, uh, the fourth one, whatever that was called, Ghost Protocol. Ghost Protocol. Okay, so who right. who that did that did Rogue Nation of Fallout? Christopher Macquarie. Macquarie. Okay, Macquarie. Macquarie. Whatever, how you pronounce it. Yeah. And did did Macquarie? Am I am I wrong? Jack did, Reacher. Didn't did Macquarie actually get started in the biz as like as like um the a writer? Or, yeah, he used to work with Brian Singer back in the day. Yeah, right? he wrote well, Suspects. Yeah, the, yeah. I was going to say. Okay, yeah. So I have to be the same guy. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, that's him. Okay. So. Yeah, uh, that was kind of a, I don't know, that was a snoozer for me. I watched it once. I couldn't tell you. I've I've never seen him. Yeah, I didn't bother with that either. Did he do a second? Did another one? Yeah, did two. I've never seen either of them. But, I mean, I saw the first one. Never went out of my way to see the second. Uh, we are giving Tom Cruise entirely too much fucking time on this episode. (laughs) So, let's move the fuck (laughs) on. Move on. All right, one of you two, go. All right, I'll go. I know Justin's probably got a list waiting for us. Um, I got Harry's uh, <laughs> classic Midnight Cowboy. Oh, good one. I'm yeah, sure. it is. Very good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I, I obviously it, it it's it's legendary, considered a classic for you know numerous reasons. Performances, the first you know X-rated film to win an Academy Award. But let's face it. You know, this film could have been made today and feel like it's PG-13. It it carried that. I I don't want to say that that it it got it it rested on the laurels of of the the controversy of an X-rated film winning, you know, best picture. But at the end of the day, it's it's a good film. You know, I used to to get annoyed with the naivete of John Boyd's Joe Buck character, especially in the beginning when he's all gearing up or. You know, right, right as Harry Nilsson's, everybody's talking about me, kicks in for the opening scene. You know, but he's gearing up at the diner and shit. He's like, yo, right. Joe Buck. You know, I'm like, this guy. Where is that Joe Buck? Right. <laughs> right. Right. It's got the intercuts. You know, he's cutting back and forth to him, getting all his cowboy gear on. And, the, and you know, the, the diner employees looking for him. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's it, 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 it's not a buddy cop film, but it's an ensemble film. And the ensemble is Boyd Hoffman. You know, and it it goes. I I think I said this before we we did a the three of us did an episode a while back. Um, it, it 
it, it makes a good double feature with uh, Scarecrow with Al Pacino. Yeah, I still never right. watched start to finish. I've seen bits and pieces. I, I've never yeah, seen man, it. One of those ones, I, I actually just bought the fucker on Prime. And then, sure enough, I think it, like, shortly after, I, I only paid, like, four bucks, and I own it on Prime Digital. Um, and within a couple of weeks of that, it hit one of the streaming services, like HBO. One of, one of the ones it's that on, I... It's on HBO. Is, is, it on, is it on HBO Max? Is it still on there? I know it hit one of them recently. Unless it went away like Seven did, mysteriously. It's, okay. It was on there. Yeah, so, Justin, check, check out Scarecrow if you got access to HBO, man. I mean, it's streaming... Yeah. Um, I have my first season when we talk that on the air, but it, it 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 goes like I said with you know Midnight Cowboy. I mean, I get it; it was a touchy subject, male, you know, gigolo, whatever. But the guy's naive, and the and the fact that you know Ratso Rizzo's got to show him the ribs. Very heartbreaking ending. Like you know, talk about you know denouement. You finally get to the precipice of paradise with tragedy in your hand. If you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, so yeah, yeah. the sad ass ending. It is, it is, but it's. I mean, it's. I I couldn't see it going any other way. I mean, these two guys, they're, they're you know, they're down to look schlubs. I mean, you, you can't just give them a happy, good, lucky life at the end right before you right. credit. It's got to end that way. You know, so yeah, that was mine. It was uh, John Barry's Midnight Cow. Yeah, no, John Barry did the music. Schlesinger, John Schlesinger. Yes. No, Harry, Harry Nilsson. Harry Nilsson did everybody's talking, but the the like whatever score was in the uh, the movie was John Barry. No, I'm talking about the, the director was John Barry. Yeah, no, the well, director you, was John. You're right, you're right, my bad. You're right. My bad. My bad. There's too many Johns in the film. Who's on first? <laughs> I don't. I don't know why. Originally, I thought it was John Sales. <laughs> he was like eight and directed Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, Justin. Um, so we haven't done this in a while. I've seen a ton of shit. I'm not gonna like go through a list because I do that and it takes forty fucking minutes. Give time. us your top three. Oh man, I don't. I didn't even like consider any. Oh, all right, hold on. So Julia and the Spirits, which I thought would be in another. That one. Um, Wait, what was it again? I didn't catch that. What did you say? Juliet of the Spirits, the Fellini movie that I went and saw at the Charles. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. That one, there's an old movie from. Oh, I know. Okay. So I know the other two. There's a movie from 76, I think it is, or 75. And I was texting Sean about it Night Moves with Gene Hackman, directed by Arthur Penn, who did Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. It's a great fucking neo noir. It's like in the vein of like uh, The Long Goodbye. One of those like seventies uh, like upend everything from the old fifties noirs. It's it's just it's awesome. So that would be one. Yeah, I, I did put that on my list based on your recommendation, but I got to yeah. plan it. My yeah, cue, so I, I got I got to drop a couple bucks to stream it for forty eight. Right, gotcha. Yeah, it came on TCM and I, I DVR'd it. Uh, and the third one, which I also texted Sean about, is Where's Papa from nineteen seventy. Yeah, I'm having a hard time tracking that down, man. You said it was George. Dude, you got to find that, man. Yeah, Carl Ryan. I mean, yeah, yeah. Carl Reiner directed George Siegel, Ron Liebman, who might be my all-time favorite comedic character actor. It's just, it's so fucking outrageous and funny. Like, I, I can't recommend a movie more highly. I mean, it's a little dated. It's from 1970, but it's very funny. Yeah, you just came to me, like, gushing about that film. Like, oh, what is God. it? I've never heard of. And here's my, you know, 
one of my cinematic life mates is going on and on about this thing. I've got to find it. So I, I dug a little, I started looking the shit up while you and I were Jackson and read about it. It looks, the, the premise that I read looked intriguing, the images that I've seen, the, the marketing that I saw. But I just can't, you know, I, I think, again, it's, I think it's one of those things where I, if, if I'm lucky, I can rent it to stream. I just, you know, ain't got no funds on the Prime account right now. But I'm looking forward to seeing that. For some reason, I don't know why when you when when you mentioned that to me, even though they don't have a lot in common, it reminded me of um that Red Fox movie, Is That You, Norman? <laughs> I never saw that. Yeah, it's like Red, yeah, it was Red Fox. That is Fred Sanford heyday, like filming late. I want to say like seventy five, seventy seven. Right, like comes visit his, you know, his son just graduated college or something, and he comes to visit his son who's living in the city and finds out his son's gay, and it's just about you know that whole dichotomy between the old school and the new school. But yeah, I don't know why it, like it brought up is that anymore. So yeah, you did talk about. Yeah, I need to see that. Yeah, I, I, I watched it once. I think it might have been, I think actually it wasn't one of the early, early, early times that Red Fox worked with Della Reese too. I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, I'm, like I said, you, you were going on and on about where's Papa and like, I like Siegel more in the seventies, if you will, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, mean, he, I agree. Like he's the guy that back and forth on, like, I don't get excited to see he's in a movie, but then. Once I see him in the movie, I, I usually enjoy it. And, and he's fucking hilarious in Where's Papa. So, yeah. And, uh, uh, well, Carbon Copy with Denzel Washington. Yeah, no, I saw that when I was a kid. I don't really remember anything about yeah, it. Yeah, I actually went back and watched it not too long ago. Because um, I remember, you know, coming on HBO when we were kids. Remember, we used to get the cable magazine in the mail every month. I remember <laughs> from, super, from the Super TV magazine. Right, exactly. From the Super TV day. Yeah, so I remember, so I and that was Denzel's like first screener. So yeah, we right. watched Urban Copy a couple months back. Right. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, "The world <laughs> is a fine place and worth fighting for." I agree with the second part. <laughs> this is seven. Do you like what you do for a living? These things you see. to wear blinders sometimes most times detective william somerset is looking for a way out you're retiring six more days and you're all the way gone so how long have you lived here too long detective david mills is looking for a way in we'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time i leave i'll show you who your friends and enemies are look i will come back five years not here now, they're caught in a game. No fingerprints and no witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony. You're going to come take a look at this. Greed. No one touches anything. Sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. Body was found on Tuesday morning. I hate this city. We're gonna get who did this. This will be the very definition of swift justice. There are two more bodies, two more victims. This guy is methodical, exacting, and worst of all, patient. He's laughing at us. 
had a gun. He's two murders away from completing his masterpiece. Ah! Let's finish it. Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow. Seven. So Seven tells the story of David Mills, played by Brad Pitt, a detective who partners with the retiring William Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman, to track down a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as a motif in his murders. All right, it's first time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically, that's my second time. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to... Um, I remember writing this when it first came out. It was either late 95 or early 96. I was at my... Cousin slash, cousin slash godmother's place and I rented it from a place in Essex called I want to say either I love video or videos are us gentlemen help me oh, out which one I was it the both of those joints <laughs> yeah I was going to say I think that both of them existed at one point they did but the the, the one across the street from the Middlesex shopping center uh, by the friendlies uh, ring a bell yeah pretty sure it was I love video yeah that's where I thought that's where I rented it from so yeah, been a fan since it came out in mid nineties. So I'm sure you two fuckers saw it in the theater. So go on. Oh, I'm sure it was that golden ring. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'm going last because I've got a hell of a story for this. Well, yeah, I, I saw it in the theater. I, I, I don't know if East Point was open at the time. I feel like this might have been. At it East just Point. opened. It's, uh, East Point opened up in May '95. And when did this come out? September. Yeah, I mean this. This is probably one of the first films I saw there, then, um, and loved yeah. it immediately. One of those movies I remember, like seeing you know trailers for it and just not being interested because there were already like a ton of kind of lame, sla like not slasher, um, serial killer movies, kind of in the wake of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, plus and, how do they market this from the director of Alien Three? Right, <laughs> exactly, and then it was the director of Alien Three, which is who Fincher was going to see that. Right, so I was just like, all right, I, you know, I think I'm skipping this one. Plus, I just didn't want to like Brad Pitt at that point. I was still at that phase of my life where I was like, fuck this guy. You know what I mean? Like, he's just got it too good. <laughs> so, um, Hot, Hollywood crammed down everyone's fucking throats. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, fuck this guy. I'm, I, I hope this movie's a failure. And then it came out, and like all Damn. the reviews were were glowing. So I was like. Oh shit, I might have to check this out. Like, you know, two or three weeks later, I'm still hearing about how great this is. So I was like, all right, I got to go see it. And um, yeah, I went and saw it and was shocked that the reviews weren't, weren't full of shit for once and agreed with like everything I read about it and loved it from the very beginning. Yeah, same. I wouldn't say I loved it when I first saw it because I believe I was just too young to love something as, I don't know. This was. This was on a level that I wasn't quite at yet at that it's point dark. when I saw it. Yeah, dude. You were, what, 12? I was 12, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I was like 22 or 23. It was like perfect for me. You know, it was like the, I was at the right age to, 
to just completely like get that vibe. I mean, I could have been the right age. It's a mad, mad world, man. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> nah. Uh, all right, Sean, let's hear this story. All right. So now I was in the same camp with Justin where like I felt there was a bit of like, you know, a contemporary adult thriller burnout around that time. Yes. Serial killers became kind of like the new, like just, you know, churn, churn four or five of these flicks out a year. Especially in 95. Yeah. Right. Well, at, the, at that time. Right. And like, I still looked at Brad Pitt like fuck that heartthrob poster boy cover a tiger deep motherfucker. I don't think I'm gonna like anything he ever did. Um, and this film turned me around. Now, what I distinctly remember my very first viewing of this. Yes, it was in the theater, but at the time, um, Justin may know. Um, Ed, you and I didn't get, weren't weren't friends yet, obviously. But at that time, I was living. I I left. I left Baltimore. I was actually living. Um, with my dad down in Georgia, I was living just south of Atlanta, about 20 minutes south of the city of Atlanta. And I was 21. Um, and film had come out a couple weeks. It was getting the same type of reviews that, you know, like they intrigued me the way they intrigued Justin. But what I distinctly remember about this film is the day that I went to see it, I went and saw it by myself. You know, I remember it was a Saturday afternoon. Um, the night before, I had got, I went out, got, and keep in mind, I've, I've been 21 for about nine months at this point. So I was balls to the wall, just going out, getting banged up legally at the bar. So I went and got on, you ever, you ever get one of them raging drunks on where you wake up feeling guilty with regret and you don't know why? I woke up that morning that way. And then come to find out, I got my ass beat the night before at the bar. Like I was all banged up. I woke up with depression, regret. I called out of work. You know, me and my dad had rented an apartment at the time. So I just like said, fuck it. Uh, I'm just taking the day to myself because I feel like a piece of shit. And it was a rainy day out. I just kind of walked down the street to this movie theater. And I bought a ticket for this new creepy flick that everybody's been talking about. And you talk about being in the in, in the in, in, and how, in, how did this film not send you further and further down this fucking exactly. you were in the possible way to see it right, know, right? wrong frame of mind to be in to go into this film how are you, <laughs> you know, still alive today for this podcast like, I just think I wrote I will I never forget that day like I had I just got all banged up the night before got jumped was beat up and bruised called out of my job and I was working some kiosk at the mall. I called out of work, you know, still had like, I don't know, 20 some odd bucks left in my pocket. So I slept in on down the street in the rain, suitably enough, you know, stopped and, you know, took a few beers at a head just to alleviate, you know, the despair and regret that I was feeling from the blackout the night before. And then slunked into this theater by myself and watched this film. So that was my first time viewing is seeing it all bruised up, hung over and fucking regretful <laughs> and can live to tell the tale i've lived to tell the tale and look at me now all right it's a lot of top five rob it's your turn okay i'm feeling kind of basic today top five side ones track ones janie jones clash from the clash mm -hmm. let's get it on marvin gay from let's get it on 
Nirvana smells like teen spirit off of Nevermind. Oh, no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation oh. Ruling. This week, I asked the gentlemen for their top five David Fincher films. I will start. My number five is Gone Girl. Yeah, um, Go ahead, Sean. No, it's, I, 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 I just got the list um, literally about an hour before we went on, so I didn't really even write anything down. I'm gonna have to just spit it off of, you know, off of memory. Actually, let me just let me just bring up his IMDb. If, while I do that, Justin, why don't you go ahead and get it? Because I didn't right, get so, it. The, like the bottom three. I'm not gonna do all three of them right now, but they're interchangeable to me. Like I, I realized like going through this again that with Fincher, there's really only three movies of his that I absolutely love. Yes, and the yes. rest of them I can kind of give or take, or you know, Mank I still haven't seen. I want to see it, I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, but let's go with Social Network. Okay, John. So I got his CV up in front of me. Um, now I, I I'm with Justin. Like you know, he's kind of hit or miss for me. I don't go out of my way. I mean, granted, I really I really dug that. That uh, that Mindhunter series that he was showrunning on Netflix, I thought that was a fun time. I like that way more than the House of Cards thing that he did. Um, so I will. I think I'm going to be in agreement. Now that I'm looking over everything, um, I'm going to go with number five is Girl with the Dragon Tattoo because he came really close at a mark, changed the ending a little bit because I had read at least the first two books in that series. I haven't finished the. Um, um, the hornlessness. Um, okay. So I'm going to say that my number five for me would be Girl with Dragon Tattoo because he he got the the right nuances to Blumquist's novel, but um, you know he had a, he had a few tweaks of his own. I think you know some worked, some didn't, but I think it was in the right hands. That film at the time that 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 book was setting the world on fire. If you guys remember, and you know oh, they, I remember. Yeah, yeah, I um, and I had I had read the first one on a flight. I read it when I when I went to Dallas for Video Joe's wedding. It was when I read that book. I bought it in the airport out of leaving out of BWI and just read it to and mm. from Texas. Mm. Okay, um, and then I went and bought and I have the the Swedish versions on like a Blu-ray box set, but I've only watched the first two because I only read the first two books. Um, gotcha. so I, I think he did it justice. With with that, and he was probably the right guy to handle it with that dark tone, but still have the you know the the big artsy Hollywood budget behind him. You know, there was a few changes yeah. he made. I agree with, and and some that I didn't. But yeah, so that's my number five is going to be Dragon Tattoo. Okay, uh, my number four is Fight Club. Ooh. Uh, yeah, my number yeah. four it will be Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Okay, John. Um, mine will be Gone Girl. Okay. Um, it was, um, I liked it. I liked it. I did. Um, again, it's. It, well, the, the I guy, hope you did. The guy's got a certain, you know, a certain. I hate the word, but certain milieu that he works within, that like is is where he can kind of fire on all cylinders. 
And again, that was one where he's able to do it. It's like he, he could, and, you know, if you're in your forties and you know, you're middle-class thinking man who enjoys sitting down with a movie every now and again, David Finch is your guy to kind of get you, get your wheels rolling a little bit. Like I almost argue that Denny Villeneuve is coming on as the next David Finch. If that makes sense. A little bit. Yes. I can see it. Yeah. Uh, my number three is Panic Room. Uh, my number three is Gone Girl. Um, right. Mine's going to be Zodiac, but I prefer the extended. Okay. Um, because I've always been intrigued by the fact this guy literally pretty much got away. But I felt like I was able to, you know, see what transpired with it. Like, I, I, I felt like I lived through the through through the through the scare, if you will. So I I mm-hmm. like Zodiac. I like the way he kind of recreated the setting. A lot of which he does digitally. Like it's one of my favorite features on there is how he recreates 1970 San Francisco on that DVD, where he just green screens a lot of that shit and as you fall into you know a, a time warp, if you will. So yeah, my number three is gonna be Zodiac. My number two is Seven. Yeah, my number two is also seven. Um, mine's going to be Mank. I enjoyed Mank. I I like it. Um, I don't think I know Justin. We we talked. You still haven't seen it yet. Um, Ed, have you watched it? No, I have not. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I've I've always been a like fan of that whole backstory of of Orson Welles flipping William Randolph Hearst the bird. Um, so anything I could, anything I could devour, like behind the scenes of Citizen Kane, I've always sought out. Like Liev Schreiber's made for HBO movie RKO two eighty one, um, in which you know Malkovich plays um, John Malkovich plays um, Herman Mankiewicz. But uh, yeah, like what I think what I like most about Mank is how he kept it true to the period because when you when you guys watch the film, what what what, what sets it apart from the rest of his stuff is the way he does the audio work. It's very tinny. It sounds like it's recorded on like a monotone, like what they right. would have access to in the late thirties, early forties. So it kind of puts you in the setting. Um, it, yeah. it, it plays a bit like Citizen Kane, but it was, it was a neat little playground for him to be in. And I, I, I don't know. I'm a sucker for Gary Oldman anytime, especially when he's playing a real life notorious drunk. So I'm there for that. All right. My number one is the social network. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Who who didn't see that fucking thing coming? Um, my, number, my number one's Fight Club. Um, I had a I I drew I drew a tie between Fight Club and Seven because both of them kind of had, you know had that impact. And like Justin said, we were at that right age. You yeah, know, I can't back up Fight Club the way you guys are. I just watched it two weeks ago too, and it's like <clears> I don't get the love that everyone feels for it. It's a great film, but I don't think it's like that great of a movie that everyone praises it for and says it is yeah i mean that's a movie i could talk a long time about so i'm not even going to begin to go into it here no and let's not let's not let's just wrap up this section so you can take it out to your little boy <laughs> no i already did i snuck oh, out you did? Yeah, oh yeah. shit 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 well before we get into the well, let's, let's wrap this up before we go into the movie itself i'm going to take a quick smoke break so um number right. did, did we did we sean anything else you want to add to it um no, I mean, which, I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying with Flight Club. Like it was, it was kind of a genre flick at its time, and and people hadn't seen anything like it. But then I went, like after the fact, I went and bought the book, 
And it's one of those times where I appreciated the difference in ending. Like in the book, you find out the whole Jack narrator split with like 160 some odd pages left. Well, I, I, I want to say something about that real quick. I will compliment one thing uh, about Fight Club. Um, it's one hell of a rewatch. Um, I didn't really realize it until rewatching it a couple weeks back. You literally are told the twist in the first five minutes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, he tells you throughout the entire movie. Yeah, it's His great. opening lines are, I know this because Tyler knows this. And I'm like, holy yeah. shit, it was right there the yeah. whole fucking time. Yeah, you got to know You got to know to look for the breadcrumbs to pick them up. What I liked about yeah. Fight Club was the, like, it literally feels like a shot of adrenaline. You know, much like you would get. Yeah, but I feel like that Dust Brothers score is dated. It's a little date. I, I still think it's great, but yeah, it's a little date. <clears throat> so I don't know. This is my take. It's a great film, but it's not that that <clears throat> film that everyone I says it is. Seven ekes it out just a little bit, so I'm going to call it seven by a nose with my tie, um, okay. just because of the feel, and not to mention the way I felt upon my initial viewing. I was the perfect guy to be sitting around so soggy, wet from the rain. Watching a depressing film about depressing shit happen to depressing people because I was very <laughs> depressed at the time. Uh, before right. you, I want to make it while while you guys are stepping away. I took a look back at the CV. I want to make a, a quick addendum to my top five. I got to throw the game in there. I don't think the David Fincher is the game with Sean Penn and Michael Douglas gets enough love, and that was one of our first introductions to to, to Fincher. I would put the game at number six because I did like the game. Yeah, I would. I I don't know where it would fall, but I would have to definitely put it with it within my top five. I forgot that he did the game, and I remember going to see that in the theater and being kind of blown away. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that, but I fucked up my list too. Zodiac was supposed to be three, not fucking Gone Girl. So whatever. (laughs) (laughs) All right, how did I do that? Talk about seven. So the film starts with Morgan Freeman's detective, Lieutenant William Somerset, getting ready for work. He's got a very particular way of collecting his daily items, sort of like an OCD way. He's got his keys, badge, pocket knife, pen, his glasses case all lined up. And yeah, he's very he, old. He takes him. Organize the detail. You know, he's got his blazer kind of laid out on the bed. You know, starts off at a quiet morning to get himself ready. To go so yeah, I, I take it like he's... Yeah, he's from the old school. He's, you know, right. Again, like you said, detail oriented. The sale, very organized. OCD. If it's this way every day, then I've got my life in order. So then we got Somerset entering a crime scene of passion, a murder suicide between a couple. He asks if the kids saw it, and the detective on scene says he's dead because his wife killed him, and says they're all going to be glad once he's gone. Always yeah, so asking he's questions. Looking, he's looking all the passion on these walls. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, 
I, I, I personally, my personal note here I wrote was, uh, I hate when movies try giving us cops who give off the perception that they don't give a shit and the less work, the better for them. Like lazy cops and shit like these cops are just like, who cares about the kid? You know, it's like, they're always trying to brush things off and shit. But then you've got that lead detective, like in this case, Somerset, who's just, you know, an eye of details, you know? Yeah. He, you know, he, he sees a shit that, that the schlubs don't see. So, you, you know, and we, we only got two hours. So we gotta, we, we gotta paint those roles in pretty broad strokes. So yeah, I agree with you there. He kind of falls back to a typical trope that's been done before and will be done again. Um, yeah, but it's one of those ain't broke, don't fix it type things. It helps uh, exposit, if you will, for the audience to focus on Somerset as this, you know, homi- you know, homicide detective mastermind. Like, and that's movie. exactly what most of the time that they're there for is, is exactly to do that. They're just there for exposition purposes. Yeah, and yeah, any cop in uniform is is expositing dialogue without a narrator. This is what's going right. on. And then what I wrote about him is, you know, I've seen this movie a ton of times, so I tried to take a different look at it this time. And, you know, first time I watched it with like a device in my hand where I can look up certain things. So I've realized, like, obviously there's a ton of like literary references throughout the movie, like, you know, the books that they named throughout. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Chalk full. But I've always... I always remember, and I'm not going to pretend that I ever read this, but there's a writer named William Somerset Maugham. I'm not sure how you pronounce the last name. Yeah, William Somerset Maugham. Yeah, I've heard Maugham. of that guy. Right, right. So he wrote of human bondage. And um, so, I was ah. reading, like, so, and so I was reading up a little bit, you know, it, it's, I was like, I know that there's a William Somerset who's an author, and sure enough, there is. And then he got the title for of human bondage from another book, and a, a passage reads... The impotence of man to govern or restrain the emotions I call bondage for, for a man who is under their control is not his own master, so that he is often forced to follow the worse, although he sees the better before him. That's like his character in a nutshell. There's a couple times throughout the movie where he tells um, Brad Pitt to stop letting his emotions get the better of him. Like he's, He realizes that to do this job, he has to be like detach himself in a way and like not come at it with any kind of emotion because that you see what happens when you do that with the Brad Pitt character. He plays the voice of reason in many scenes in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. He tries. It doesn't always yeah. work. Right. Exactly. Exactly. He tries to be exactly. Yeah, so, uh, he's, he, he plays it almost like he's, I don't want to say sick or fed up, but he's just frustrated. The fact that he's always one step ahead, he's kind of frustrated that he can't get others to that level. That, like, I see this world a particular way. Why the fuck can't you? Or, you know, when you're younger, way do you see what I've seen and your team is going to change? Well, yeah, that, that's that's the, the dynamic between him and Brad Pitt. But he's just burnt out. Like, he realizes the world's a shitty place and he can't take it anymore. Right, yeah, he's well, like, if, if, I'm Bell. In fucking no country for old men. Like right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, if you lived and worked in this city, wouldn't you feel shitty every day, too? Right. That's the thing. Well, I, 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 I had the level I, of violence. It's constantly raining. Well, let's hang on. Hold that thought. I, I have a part for the city. We're not there yet. <laughs> so enter, enter Brad Pitt, who plays Detective David Mills. He enters the crime scene abruptly and later apologizes for the manner as they're leaving. Um, 
now we can talk about the city. So the city, uh, it's a nameless city. Some thinks it's they have theories it's Seattle. You yeah, know, but- it's but you know, I think that it's just because of the whole rain aspect. Um, it's a very noisy, pop overpopulated. Just um, it kind of reminds me in areas, not the rain part, but um, Alex Foyer's uh, Dark City. Yeah, right. I get I get vibes from that at times. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a completely nameless city, and it's basically like it's 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 a representation of just chaos. That's how I've always looked at it. it yeah, it it gives the viewer like that visual feeling of despair. It's a it's a grimy, busy, rude, rainy city. And yeah, you don't you don't know what city it is. I mean, I think the first time I watched it, I thought they were in Philadelphia, but shit, it's never named. You well, know, it's, it's really- not just the city that's nameless. There's actually a bunch of things that David Fincher just doesn't care about the details and just like. For example, we're going to get to him uh, coming up, but like Arlie Ermey's character, he's just police captain. There's no name for him at all. <laughs> he's just captain. Yeah, exactly. He's, you know, broad, again, broad strokes to to paint the setting. And one thing that I, because I always remember this film, and a film like this has to be dark, not just in tone, but in, you know, lighting and cinematography and whatnot. And there was a special, like, color correction they did with 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 the negative where they they legitimately left all the silver in the celluloid so that when they processed the final print it still came through that like dark and grimy because today was my first time ever watching it in high definition because ed brought his blu-ray over this morning um i had always had you know my dvd copy which I was telling Ed this earlier. I think Justin, you and I talked about it. It was one of the first DVDs I bought. Wasn't nothing on the film, but I had to flip the motherfucker over 45 minutes in to finish the movie. <laughs> I really, I, fellas. The, scene with, <laughs> the scene with Gwyneth Paltrow and Morgan Freeman in the diner like cuts off mid-sentence, and I had to get up and flip the fucking disc to get to the end credits. You know? Um, so I got to, to sitting here watching this in high def. I'm still tweaking the brightness of stuff on, 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 on my 4K TV, but you know it works. It works, and again, it's because of the mood that Finch is putting you in. Like this is you're not in for a good time. I mean, let's face it, no serial killer no. movies. A <laughs> fucking good time. I just no, not at all. But he definitely puts you in that that like you know unsettled mood. All right, so Mills wants to get to the precinct while Somerset would rather go to a bar. He asked Mills, why here? Questioning how and why he suddenly got transferred there. He makes it very clear that he runs the shots, and we can see right away that Pitt's Mills character is going to be a handful for Somerset. Uh, that same night at home, Somerset blocks out uh, the outer noise from the loud streets using a metro- metronome. metronome. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, metronome. Metronome. right. Okay. As, I think it's uh, to help him sleep. I think it's what it does. It's like it's like white noise or like the the whole, you know, the like some people sleep them little trickle waterfalls by their bed. I think it's. I always took it's it like, like me with the. T- it's like me with the TV. Right, Mandy's the same way with the TV. I, I I I was that way until we got together. We had to compromise. I was that way with talk radio. I would I like talk radio would help me go to sleep. Like it, it just kind of 
you know, helps me unwind, turn the mind off and soothe. And I think that's what he uses that metronome for more than drowning out, you know, the noise of the neighbors. But I did, I did pick up on that today that like how noisy everything is around them. Yeah. The metronome and it's, I'd have to jump ahead a little bit to make this point, but I always thought the same thing is just kind of white noise. But today I've realized that it, I think it's to kind of like, it's his like his calm demeanor, even though he 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 gives off that that appearance of calm inside. He's like just ter- it's turmoil. And yeah, so, thing, so it, it helps him keep balanced. If, it, like, it, it, yeah. brings, it it helps bring him down. And the reason I say this is there's a scene later in the movie when they're at the height of their frustration with the case because they can't figure out who the fuck this guy is and people are getting killed and they blew the chance to get him at the apartment. He's laying in bed and that thing's going and he fucking what? like slaps it off. That's the, yeah, that's that's off, off the, the finale exactly. Right. Yeah. And he like, and he's yeah, he, he he he's um, in a way that's him giving into that whatever that fury is that's boiling inside of him. Yeah, it's one way of looking at it. Definitely, he can't he can't, he can't turn off the voice in his head. It's like constant. Right. Now he finally stopped and listened to it, and it's yeah. keeping him up on like throwing switchblades at the fucking dartboard. Right. Exactly. So this is where we get the film's opening credits set to a remix of the Nine Inch Nails song "Closer," with uh, some uneasy flashes of images of film celluloid being cut, finger shavings, and John Doe's notebook being examples of the stuff included with this unique sequence. Yeah, uh, like throwing the pages, they're like they're like loose leaf pieces, or there's composition, you know, paper out of a book, but he's still sewing them together, like you uh-huh. see. Of zoom of them being sewn and at first I, I obviously because of a nine inch nail cover i thought this was the first like trent reznor score and ed you're the big score guy around here it's more it's howard shore obviously um i don't know why but i guess mainly because i never heard that cover or, or that remix of yeah, it's like a remix of it, right? it's 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 an unreleased remix it wasn't done by nine inch nails actually funny enough um I forgot the name of the band who does it, uh, but it's not it's not Trent or Nine Inch Nails or anything like that. So and then just, uh, movie, that go on. Every serial killer movie for like the next five to six years, at least after this movie, had either opening credits with that same typography, yeah. or like and and or um, an industrial song blaring in the background over the credits. I, I was gonna <laughs> say this song. Period. This song got a lot of play in a bunch of fucking films in the mid to late nineties. This, the fan, was another one that had this film predominantly in it throughout. Um, there was another film that I can't think of off the top of my head that had this song in it, but this song was featured in at, in at least three big nineties movies. Well, um, touching back on what Justin was saying about the, you know the hyperkinetic opening credits in industrial school. Just look at D Snyder's Strangeland for Christ's sake. Arguably. I, one I've of only the- seen that film once in my entire life. Oh, and it was God. back when it came out. Dude, I'd so, I, that film is so underrated. I think it's, I mean, yes, the product of its time, it shows its age mm-hmm. on its, you watch it now, but it's still, you've only seen it once. Really? I've never seen it. I, I didn't like it. I, I thought it was just, I thought it was shit. Personal. That's what I see. That's yeah. what I always thought it was going to be, which is why I've never no, 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 his name. His name is fucking Captain Howdy for Christ's sake. Yeah, well, I mean, Captain Howdy was a character he introduced on, on, um, on, on one of their Twisted Sister albums. They, 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 yeah, I they, never listened to Twisted Sister, so sorry. I did, I did, but again, I was you know, product of you know they, they were hot in '86 when I was 12 years old. 
Um, no, no, no. Yeah, literally, leave those, leave those opinions at the door, okay? And because what D. Snyder did with Strangeland is ultimately what Rob Zombie would get to do with his entire ovoir, if you will, where he was able to take that that heavy metal rock persona and his love for movie and kind of make. I don't want to say a fan film, but to make something that that meant something to him. And Strangeland was cool, like yeah, like the Carl the Carlton Hendricks Captain Howdy character was a completely different on screen horror icon than you had seen at the time. So I honestly think you boys owe it to yourselves, Justin, for the initial viewing, Ed for the sophomore viewing. Go back and watch Strangeland. Yes, it's going to feel like you know you're in the late '90s again. But if you can leave those preconditions at the door and watch it for just like the, the the fun, visceral, uncomfortable horror story that's being being told, I think it's a fun time. And he's talked about bringing a sequel out. He's going on press in the last couple of weeks saying they're getting a little bit closer for him doing a follow-up. I'm looking forward to it. I, think be cool. I mean, they've been talking about Strangeland, too, for as long okay. as they've been talking about the Brazilian job. You're not selling me on it, by the way, by comparing it to Rob Zombie's filmography. <laughs> <laughs> I've made it known that I'm not a big fan, to put it mildly. So, all right, let's move <laughs> on. So, <laughs> consider so, uh, we, all right. So we got Mills and his wife Tracy, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, waking up to the city sound, and David's getting ready. Um, his process. He kisses his wife goodbye, referring to himself as Serpico. Uh, who's that no, gentleman? In case our casual audience didn't pick up on the reference. No, I, I did pick up on that. She's like, Serpico might want to get this crust out of your eye. Um, yeah. I my, the first note that I took here, and this is something that apparently I never realized that I took this from this film, but I must have. You notice how, like, as you see Somerset, you know, he's he's all, you know, organized, prim, proper with his morning routine. Mills just kind of stuffing his, you know, shirt into his pants, and he pulls a tie off a hanger. All his ties Already are pretty <laughs> I do the same fucking thing. Man, you tell you, I've got two hangers filled with fantastic neckties that I've tied perfect fucking Windsor knots in. Just because it's 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 like, you know, mopping a floor giving birth. It's just something I can't really fucking do is tie a tie. I literally <laughs> I used to have a, a little diagram over top of my bed bathroom mirror that showed how to tie a Windsor knot when I had to get suited up. I never knew until today that I took that fuck it, just leave them not and put them on a hanger thing from David Fincher seven. And I've got years <laughs> full of ties in my closet. Thanks to this movie. So uh, Mills and Somerset arrive at the scene of an obese man who's dead over a plate of food representing the sin of gluttony. The cop who meets them at the scene is none of Did you recognize this cop, Sean? I know I, you recognize I, this I, cop. I, I know you know who this cop is. I, I, I was waiting for you to bring it up because I thought I placed him towards the end of his screen. You know, he's only on screen for like two minutes towards the end of that scene. I thought I placed him, you know, because he's like, you know, unless this guy's breathing spaghetti sauce, he's been fucking face down dead for the last 45 minutes. Who is it? No, who is it? You know, like, Adam Ferrara from Rescue Me. Needles himself. Oh, shit. It is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is. Is Adam Florida? The guy's a stand-up comic. That's why I like them as, as needles. At the end of the movie, too, when John Doe t- reveals himself, he, he's he's there at the uh, the station at the, at the precinct. Okay, I never knew that was Adam Florida. All right, yeah. yeah. Needles, rescue me, right on. I had no idea. Um, 
So let's talk about this death here. Holy shit. Um, probably the worst fucking way you could ever possibly die. It, with uh, Minus being burnt alive, I'd say. I mean, can you imagine being forced to feed yourself for 12 hours until you just your body shuts down? Is that what they said? It was like non. He was forced to feed himself. It was twelve. Yeah, 12, he was. He was there for twelve hours. They say, like his stomach bursts at a certain point. Yeah, basically. Not, I don't know that I ever picked it up before, and I'm surprised I didn't. But obviously, watching in a high def, I noticed that he's down by fucking barbed wire. It's not. Like yeah, he's, he's held broken. down. Yeah, his his feet and hands are bound by barbed wire. Uh huh. You know, sitting, uh-huh. you know, and he's obviously a recluse, a shut in with it, looked like a hoarder with a roach infested apartment, you know, sitting in front of a, you know, face down in front of a bowl of spaghetti. Um, but I, I didn't realize it, that they said like, it was, that it was, I don't want to say only 12 hours, but I guess that means for like 12 hours nonstop, he had to just fucking straight eat spaghetti from six at night to six in the fucking morning. Just uh-huh. put it out. With a gun pointed at him. Well, yeah, you do kind of notice that when 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 Mills takes a look at the body, you kind of see like the pressure point of what looks to be a gun barrel on the back of this obese guy's neck. I always caught that. Um, right. now, alone. now, this is what I want to do for this episode as we, you know, basically go through the sins and how they're represented. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found this really nice article when I was doing some research from the mm-hmm. site called uh, thisisbury.com. Uh, they have a really good insight on um, the sins broken down, and I kind of want to just go over each one as we get to them. So I want to I want to read the uh, what he wrote down for gluttony, okay. um, since we're here. Gluttony <laughs> is an inordinate desire to consume more than that which requires. Its punishment in hell is to be forced to eat rats, toads, and snakes. Well. We can all agree that spaghetti is nothing like rats or toads, but John Doe made sure that the sinner experiences hell. The extremely obese victim was found dead in his apartment with his hands and legs tied, sitting in his own piss and shit with his face in a bowl of spaghetti. The autopsy doctor mentioned that something caused an internal hemorrhage in his stomach when he was alive, and that he died when his stomach burst due to it. In a later scene, we see the captain come into Somerset's office to hand him over pieces of plastic found the victim's stomach. Following the evidence, Somerset goes to the victim's home and discovers that the bits were chipped from all the floor when someone dried the refrigerator. So when he does the same, he finds gluttony written behind it with a message by the killer quoting the epic Paradise Lost. Long is the way and hard that out of hell leads up to light. Somerset gets the hint that this murder would follow many more. Yeah, now um, you, you, you... You went through a little quicker than I expected you to. Did you notice who played the uh, the medical examiner in that scene? He's been dead a long time, and I can tell you it was not poisoned. Oh, man. How does someone let themselves go like that? Took four orderlies just to get him on the tape. How the fat fuck ever fit out his front door? Please. It's obviously my shut-in. Now, look at this. See how big this stomach is? And the strange thing is, it stretches. Here, look at the size of the cardiac orifice where the food... Wait, 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 I see what you're pointing up, but that means nothing. Okay. He's got lines of distension across the duodenum, and the interior wall is ripped open. This man ate till he burst? He didn't really burst. Not all the way. He was 
hemorrhaging internally. And there was a hematoma in the rectus and the transverse abdominis muscle. So we did die by eating? Yes and no. What about these bruises up here? No, I haven't figured that out yet. Gun pressed against his head? Pressed hard enough, sure. Fuck yeah. Marks from the front side flush with the muzzle. Ladies and gentlemen, we have ourselves a homicide. That is Reg E. Kathy. The That's great Reg E. Kathy. Yeah, from the floor of the water. Did you say the late Reggie Kathy? Did he pass away? He passed away last year. Oh, Jesus. Or, the, or, the, or this year. It might have been this year. It was recently. I didn't know that. I always remember him as Carcetti's campaign manager in season four of The Wire. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I remember him from um, Speed and uh, – no, it wasn't Speed. It was um, – yeah, it was Speed. He was in Speed, and he was also in um, uh, The Mask with Jim Carrey. And Ooh. also – he was also in American Psycho. You were kind, sir. You were kind. He was the oh, homeless guy. That film, isn't it? He's the homeless <laughs> guy. Patriot Pat Patrick yeah. Bateman kills in the alley. Yeah, I, I didn't know that was Reggie Kathy. I see now. Yep. Yeah. So I made note with that. Um, the other note that I had is, um, and it, this kind of is in. It goes throughout the film. Like I still don't understand. Like Somerset just got an issue with the town in general. You know what I mean? He's like he's asking Brad Pitt. You know, why here he has the same conversation with, you know, uh, Arlie Hermes, the captain about this town, this town. Like, there's a part of me that wants a little bit of like almost like a prequel uh, of Williams. Like, like what soured him against this town? Or is it just the whole Sheriff Ed Tom Bell at the end of No Country for Old Men type thing where, you know, he's just getting too old for this shit. And, you know, the, the, the generation that's replacing him is just escapes him. I mean, what do you guys think? Like, what is, what is, I mean, that? watching this for two hours, wasn't enough today for you. You want another fucking two hour film of fucking just gloom and doom and depression. Yeah, everywhere he looks, there's every, there's like every, he just sees people like, I mean, fighting on the streets and shit. Okay. All right. Well, and then it's, there's also a point where they, I forget the exact, what they say exactly, but there's mention of other cases that didn't get solved. And he's like, you know, we, we got those as close to close as humanly possible. I took them as close to conclusion as humanly possible. Right. He took it as far as he possibly could. Like he just people getting murdered and like, there's no justice for it. Like, you know, he's seen it for 50 years now and it just gets worse and worse and he just can't deal with it anymore. Yeah. He's, he's just, he's been around the, he's been around the block for a minute, you know, he's seen it all. Yeah. So, so they, they take their conclusion to the unnamed police captain played by Arlie Ermey. When suddenly yeah. Somerset requests to be taken off the case, stressing it's too soon for Mills. And this isn't the case he wants to go out with. Mills suggests taking the case uh, himself, but the captain denies both men and tells Somerset he's sorry, but he's stuck cleaning up the fat man. Uh, then we cut to Richard Roundtree as the district attorney, Martin Talbot, who gives the press 10 minutes of his time and will not be answering any questions related to the recent crime, so don't even bother asking. While Mills catches an elevator, he's chased by a reporter trying to have a word, but he lets the door close on her without answering. 
So Mills is watching the, the, the DA's press junket on the television who mentions that this is going to be an example of strict justice when it's all said and done. He turns the TV off to reveal that he's at another crime scene in the living room of a very nice office with greed written in blood on there, along with a bloody box of sorts and a photograph of a woman with blood circles painted around her eyes. No, he's not in the living room. He's, he's, he's in this high price attorney's office. Like, yeah, yeah. I wrote down living room because it looks like one, but you're right. It is one. So uh, real quick, I want to write down, uh, read off what he wrote for uh, Greed on this site here. Greed is the desire for material wealth or gain, ignoring the realm of its spiritual. Its punishment is hell. Um, its punishment in hell is to be boiled in the most luxurious, most expensive oil in the universe. But maybe John was on a budget, so he decided to improvise and ask Eli Gold, the high-profile district attorney, to cut himself exactly a pound of flesh. He uh, leaves a message quoting Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, one pound of flesh, no more, no less, no cartilage, no bone, only flesh. Here, the mention, of, here the mention of flesh suggests vengeful, bloodthirstiness, and inflexible behavior to get back borrowed money. Just before the last scene of the movie, we see John ranting about how he killed people who weren't innocent. He believed that Eli Gould made all of his money by lying and defending murderers and rapists, so he made him pay it back with a pound of flesh. And the character in Shylock, who is, I mean, a character merchant of Venice would have been Shylock, played by Pacino in um, uh, a film adaptation not too long ago. Uh, yeah, and I read up on I read up on because I, I I'm not going to sit here and say that I've ever read The Merchant of Venice. I kind of knew the broad strokes of it, so I read up on it a little bit. And there's a scene towards the end where one of the characters, a female character, dresses as a male so she can argue in front of the court, and she makes a case against Shylock to try to talk him into mercy because that's sort of God's will is you know punishment, but a merciful punishment. So it made me think about John Doe's character. There's no mercy in any of the, the crimes he commits. So does he, because it seems like what he's doing is to be like a penance for whatever his problems are, whatever he perceives as his sins. But if he's doling out all this punishment without any kind of mercy, it seems like it goes against, or he just didn't get that far in the merchant of Venice, which seems unlikely because he's a highly intelligent guy. Um, like that that just doesn't square with his character well i i think because mm. there's a line delivered later on in the film um so the somerset explains the act of attrition it's like as the act of you know condoning one's sins without really like you, you you're accepting of your sins but not because you you regret them you know, it's like the, the act of attrition is not like, you know, oh, Lord, forgive me because I've come to the conclusion what I did was wrong. Oh, Lord, I need you to forgive me because I'm being forced to face this. And so I think that I think what you're getting at is, you know, there's a difference between penance and attrition. Penance is, you know, you bow down and take acceptance for what you've done based on, you know, where you where you've come to personally attrition is like somebody else telling you you done fucked up it's about time for you to fucking pay for it in the eyes of the Lord. I well that's what he sees himself as doing right okay 
All right, so um, Somerset takes that note that he found behind the fridge to uh, the captain. He's confused while being told this is the only this is only the beginning, as there are five more sins to be expected. He walks away mm-hmm. while the captain calls out for him, all while Mills is there saying he's all over it. Yeah, he's like, you can expect five more of these. He wanted to him. He wanted it. Give them to him. Yeah. yeah. So we see Somerset take a cab, telling the driver he's going far away from here. He goes to the library while all the guards there are having themselves a little poker game. Uh, we see him questioning their taste and culture when one of the guards, played by Hawthorne James. Do you guys recognize this cat? Because I sure I, do. I, 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 I can't say from where, though, Justin. Did we already recognize him? Yeah, no, I, it's same with me. Like, I know I've seen him and stuff, and I... Like I'm hard pressed to name one off the top. Of Definitely head. a that guy character actor because he's got like kind of like that Afro mullet going on. That kind right. of thing. Well, he was the bus driver in Speed, bringing that movie there back up. He was the one who gets shot. I get it. I get it. Yep. Yep. So that's one of the roles. But yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. And I remember him from a lot of things when I was younger. Um, so. He plays box suite number three in D major while Somerset does his research. Also cut with Mills at home doing the same. And then we see the text Wednesday. Uh, we see Mills return to his car from the library with Dante's Inferno. Is it Dante's Inferno he's got or is it Paradise Lost? I, I'm confused by this because he's quoting. Oh, he Dante, he's, Dante, he's got, he's got Dante, Dante wrote the Divine Comedy. Divine Comedy, that's it. Because he's talking about Dante, you fucking you know, you poet, all this stuff. Right. Yeah, what, you, what you gloss over was a, there was a little montage of of um somerset going through you know he's he's going in this library he's grabbing you know chaucer's canterbury tales allegary's you know divine comedy um you know he's grabbing all these books the classic literature that is that would have referenced the seven deadly sins and he's kind of like making almost like a crib sheet to leave for detective mills and then you see mills running out to his car in the rain you know, trying to make like he's, he pulls a copy of the book off his dashboard. And he's like Dante and your fucking poetry. Speak fucking English. Fucking he throws it. So yeah, he, he throws he, it, and another cop comes over and brings him the Cliff's notes. Right. Like, <laughs> what I did, he just he takes a cheap, he takes a cheap way out. Spends like thirty bucks on right, you know, right. Just a book. And in that um that montage where Somerset's going through the library. It cuts to Mills, like, looking at crime scene photos. Like, he's staring at these photos waiting for a clue to jump out at him. Right. Whereas yeah, right, yeah. going and doing all the legwork and trying to get inside this guy's head. Yeah, and he just, yeah, he's staring at these black and white evidence photos, you know, of, let's face it, gruesome images. Like, for waiting for that thing to jump out of him, like you said. Yeah. And right. He's not, he, he's a good guy, but he's not bright enough to do that kind of legwork. Somerset. Yeah, he's not connecting the next dot like Somerset. All right. right, So back at the office, Mills is settling in as Somerset's on his way out when Mills' wife Tracy calls and personally invites Somerset to a late supper at his apartment, which he accepts. Then the two, or her apartment. Well, it's Mills, it's his too. Anyway, uh, the two come home together and introduces himself. uh, uh, Somerset introduces himself to Tracy. Well, like, um, wait, wait, wait. I like the lightness of this scene. You know, it's we don't get many light moments in this movie. And right. scene, 
because it's like obviously Mills is about to take over Somerset's office. So Somerset, you know, Mills comes in with his box of stuff. Somerset gets up and, you know, moves over to the desk off the side. You know, Mills sits down. You know, he's like, you want your chair? He goes, no, 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 you go ahead and use it. Then the phone rings and, and Mills turns to Somerset. He's like, phone. He goes, pack his deal. It comes with the office. Right. That's, that's when, you know, Brad Pitt answers the phone. And you can tell he's telling his wife, like, I told you not to call me at work. And he's like, um, it's my wife. She wants to talk to you, you know, and Somerset gets on the phone. It's very, you know, only hearing the one side of the conversation, but you know, he's like, um, okay, well I'd be delighted. He hangs up the phone and just sits back down because Brad Pitt like gets on the phone and she's already hung up and, you know, he turns to him and he goes, well, he goes, oh yeah, I've been invited to a light supper over, or a late supper over at your place tonight. <laughs> even fucking Mills didn't know so there's that little light moment of like you're starting to see these two bond a little bit together and, and you kind of need that at this point there's so much dark and grit going. well my notes are a little bit different my first note here is uh, all the interiors of the film have like a similar look and sort of an eerie feel to it even when it's supposed to feel like, like home like like here um, and there's also um like a foreshadowing of sorts uh, with uh, David and Tracy. Uh, they're, they, uh, they're pretending that they, they joke about having kids uh, yeah, when, when David, kids. You know, like David gets home. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like, I wouldn't, you know, it's not really necessarily a, uh, um, I, I don't know, what are we going to call it? But it's it not, I wouldn't call it foreshadowing, but it's it's definitely a nod towards the end. Well, yeah, they reference kids, it turns out they're talking about the two dogs. You know, they have dogs? Did I miss that? Yeah, that's what she's talking about. She's talking they, they have a room full of like two or three dogs. Oh wow. Yeah, I totally, I totally yeah, missed that. There's paper all over the floor. Yeah, he says, How are the kids? She said they're 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 fine. They're in the room. And he goes in the room and he lays that because he got newspaper on the floor. The dogs kind of hold up, you know, in, in this, you know, room surrounded by glass doors. So yeah, they, they do have a couple of dogs that they refer to as the kids. All right, so it's mentioned here that Tracy and David are also high school sweet, uh, high school sweethearts. Uh, laying on that backstory to give the character more of a connection for the audience to have a bigger impact on the final moments. That's my interpretation of it. Yeah, and yeah. then earlier on when they were in bed together, I think it was the where she called him Serpico. That scene, she said something to the effect mm -hmm. of because there's a bunch of traffic noise or construction noise outside, and she said something to the effect of, "I thought we were." past the days of being woken up by a tractor pool, like something to that effect, which indicates that they obviously are not from that city and they're coming from a completely different way of life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Correct. And then later in the film, she says they lived upstate. So um, I think this scene is a lot of like, there's little subtle hints that they're trying to show that they're not like, um, you know, hayseeds. And they're somewhat sophisticated, like when yeah, um, they're, they're, they're coming from a rural environment to a more urban environment. They're trying right. to adapt. And they're maybe overcompensating because he's got Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man playing in the background. And there's like some jazz later on when they cut to the dinner scene. And it's like, it's hard for me to believe that David Mills was sitting around listening to Marvin Gaye Trouble Man. I just, you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's almost like they're laying it on a little thick. The yeah, when he's looking at dinner, the wine glasses, he's drinking a Pabst. Right. 
Right. That's good. I never picked up on that, but you're right. Like he seemed to me to be like the Al Bundy, you know, star quarterback of Polk High and, you know, in, in, in rural podunk, whatever. Last thing he's going to do is throw on some fucking jazz music and open a <laughs> bottle of rosé. That, that's that's like Gwyneth Paltrow's character. She's the more um, worldly of the two, it seems like. So you know, and uh, and they even get like duped on their house. They talk about how the the realtor only brought or into their apartment. The realtor brought them around like for five minutes and would wish them out, and like they were kind of not streetwise enough to realize that there was something wrong with that scenario. Yeah, and they live right underneath the subway tracks. Right, the their house vibrates every time. Between. <laughs> every half hour, the house is going to rumble right. up. Much like uh, Elwood Blues apartment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Blues Brothers. So at dinner, Somerset's asked why he never got married, and he blames it on his job and being uninteresting himself. Uh, he asked the two how they like it here, and says, and they say that they'll get numb after a while. Subway train passes. Then Somerset just damn near collapses from laughter at the idea of a soothing, relaxing, vibrating home. Why aren't you married, William? Oh, Trace, what the hell? I was close once. Just didn't happen. It surprises me. It really does. Anyone who spends a significant amount of time with me finds me disagreeable. Just ask your husband. Very true. Very, very true. So how long have you lived here? Too long. How are you liking it? You know, it takes time to settle in. Be good. Well, you get numb after a while. Yeah, I think so, any city. Subway. It'll go away in a minute. Real estate guy. Fucking piece of... Sorry, easy. Shows us the place a few times. I think he's good. He's efficient. Trace really likes it. Then I start wondering why will he only bring us here for five minutes at a time, yeah? We found out the first night. The soothing, relaxing, vibrating home. And that's and, and that's what I that's one of the one of the other notes that I made about you know like one of the few light, light moments you see Morgan Freeman's character actually smile for one of the few times in the film, and he shares a legitimate laugh with this guy that he's you know had not animosity but he's definitely kept at arm's length. You see them grow a little bit closer, and they're laughing. They're, they're actually, you know, ha- have a laugh around the dinner table with a couple of drinks. So it helps. It helps the bond, you know, and and you need that. All, yeah, pretty much all at David's, David's expense, pretty much. 
right. it's kind of the scene I was thinking about <clears throat> earlier. I was looking at the two of them and thinking they remind they have like an Oscar and Felix dynamic. Yeah, true and enough. And, and then like I looked. Yeah, at it you actually like, do. That's good. Yeah, call. like little little Oscar and Felix. And then like I looked at it again. I'm like, wait a minute, this is Myrtle and Riggs, but yeah. the roles are reversed. Yeah, it's, it's Riggs bringing Myrtle home to dinner. And that was kind of like the bond, you know, that was the bonding experience in Lethal Weapon was that dinner at Murtaugh's house. So this is sort right. of, you right. know, same thing. All right. So later on, after Tracy goes to bed, Mills and Somerset compare notes from the latest Deadly Sin's body. It's revealed the greed victim had to cut off a pound of flesh for the scale. Uh, not a pound, more or less, exactly one pound. Yeah, I said all this stuff already. Uh, so Somerset hypothetically asks, with a gun pointed at your face, which part is more expendable? David gets some more beer for himself and wine for Somerset. Um, David reveals that he read the passages from the book, which surprises Somerset. It's revealed no fingerprints and no witnesses, which is strange because no one seemed to know about the killer's presence. Somerset says this is all just for his curiosity and that he's still leaving at the end of the week. The photo of the victim's wife is brought up and Somerset questions if it represents something she's supposed to see, but hasn't been given the chance. Yeah, you're talking about so, the photo um, with the two bloody circles around her eyes. Like, you know, maybe yes, she saw it. Right, right. And before you go past this scene, there's two things. Did you notice Morgan Freeman's reaction when the, the house started to vibrate and he picks up the glass and he notices the glass that Pat, uh, Brad Pitt poured the wine into? It's like a, you know, like no. it's like one of those tall, like, water glasses that you know that you just oh, like a pint glass have, like 50 of them in their uh their cabinet right you don't have proper, yeah, you don't have proper uh i remember or, or glass glass. i remember him like studying the glass from the vibration but i didn't know he, notice. he picks it up and then he kind of does a double take because you know he's thinking that his wine was poured in a wine glass and he sees it in this fucking like you know like a step above a mason jar in his mind so <laughs> it's like a nice little character right 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 okay i get it i didn't notice it and then uh what was the other one so and then the other thing they they kind of have this back and forth it's the first time here and they have it a couple of times throughout the movie where somerset says he's preaching and mills is like he's punishing they're kind of having this back and forth like mills throughout this thing whole movie has a hard time giving john doe the credit for being as smart and as brilliant as he is um somerset sees it all along so that's part of what causes mills downfall and yeah, he yeah. doesn't see that there that there's that there's an underlying message being told on behalf of the perpetrator. Right. Getting that. He just I'm thinks sure. it's bad shit, you know. Right. Right. All right. So Tracy wakes up. Uh, Mills and Somerset are gone. They go to Mrs. Gould, the wife of the greed victim, who is hysterically in tears, saying that she can't answer anything right now. Uh, eventually, she notices one of the paintings in the photo being upside down. So they go to the crime scene and check the painting. Somerset takes his switchblade and cuts the back, but finds nothing. He dusts for fingerprints and finds something. They call the lab and the fingerprints spell out, help me, on the wall. But the prints don't match anyone at first. Being warned by the lab, it could take a few weeks to get a match. Or a few days to get a match. Now, did you catch you play the lab technician in his fingerprint scene? No. He shows up for a small scene in the beginning of Shawshank Redemption. We brought him up before here on the Film Effect Podcast. Did I overlook who this actor is? Who is it? Looks a hell of a lot like his father. 
you're just rambling. We, we, and who Alfonso is it? Freeman. It's Morgan Freeman's son. <laughs> what? That's Alfonso Freeman. Yeah, that's Freeman's son. And that's uh-huh. it. Yeah. Yeah, he plays. He plays. You know, he he plays red. Young Wait, no, that's his son because that guy is a lot older than I know, dude. That is Alfonso Freeman. That's yeah, that guy. Me. That guy's not super old. Not not in the scene where he's analyzing the fingerprints. He, he's he's like a thirty something year old guy. He's, he's he's about as old as me and Justin. And that's yeah you know, okay um yeah, okay yeah, him. I I didn't know that till I didn't pick it up till just after the fact but sure enough that's him because he he's got you know he shows up and Shawshank is Red's you know incarceration photo and he's right. got one line at the beginning about fresh fish fresh fish yeah it's Alfonso Freeman it's Morgan Freeman's son playing the uh, fingerprint technician. Uh, so in the hallway, Somerset tells Mills in so many ways that they're getting nowhere with the case. At this point, I'm focusing in on Fincher's usage of various green and yellow palettes throughout, with some shades of blue at times, but definitely green and yellow. Um, there's a really dirty look that makes you feel very uncomfortable, and this is at the point of the film where I just take notice to it right away. Like I guess it's just the palette that he uses and kind of stands out in this hallway scene to me. I don't know. This is when I wrote it down, because it's noticeable throughout. Um, it's a very dark and uncomfortable film intentionally that way uh, but just his, his, his choice to use that green and yellow palette throughout the film is just I don't know yeah, you know, it's just a choice that I've that suits the, the mood you know it's, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a visual depiction of the hopelessness and despair that right. not only yeah. you drain the all the color out of everything yeah. Right. I mean, obviously, the city's painted at being hopeless and, and full of despair. These two guys are tasked with, you know, a monumental case that could end up being very disparaging and ultimately hopeless. Because what, what, what does Somerset say? Because we're just here. We're just picking up the pieces. Picking up the pieces. This is, this is a good scene between the two of them. It, it underscores the He's the like, what are we doing? We're picking up his pieces. We're writing right. everything down. We're taking the photos and we're filing them in the in the off minuscule chance that it actually goes to trial. We get to bring it up. He's re- he's resigned himself to the fact that this mysterious killer may very well have the upper hand, and they 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 may be never get to the end of the breadcrumbs. Yeah, or he says so many so many corpses rolled away unrevenged, which again yeah, just yes yeah. plays back to that. There's unresolved cases. This shit is weighing heavy on this dude at this point, and he just can't do it anymore. Right. Um, he's, you know, he's having a worse last day of work than fucking Pendergrass <laughs> no, no fall, in the falling down. You know what I mean? And, Talk about a shitty, shitty last run for a cop. And pause, it's pause, the, pause, pause, oh, yeah. pause, pause, pause. Sean, you're echoing. Are you fucking taking a piss? Yeah, hold on. <laughs> I knew it. Oh, God damn it. You're the one who told me to use my phone. Fucking throw in the goddamn room and say, Excuse me for a minute. I don't want to hear you fucking taking a piss while I'm recording the podcast. <laughs> I'm sitting down that way you don't hear a trickle. <laughs> oh my god. That's an audio grab. I've ever heard of one. <laughs> I guess if you, if you sprinkle on your tankle, it'll be a sweetie. What the CD? <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm all done. You want to hear me flush? 
<laughs> I, 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 I want to hear that fucking echo go away because I know you. I, I, by that point, I'll know you'll be out of the bathroom. I hear you wash your hands. Yeah, I, I don't hear that water running. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, all right. I'm done. All right, Sean, uh, uh, all right Justin, proceed. Uh, who the hell knows? Who cares? I don't remember. What I was <laughs> <laughs> oh man, to leave that in or cut it out. Mm. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm down either way, man. Let's uh, let's go full warts here on the film effect. I don't give a shit. Uh, so the, the two wake up the next morning. So they end up falling asleep on this chair, this bench in the hallway. They're woking up to the the SWAT not yeah the SWAT team is that's one of them but it's mainly the the captain uh Ermy waking them up because they've got their guy uh the the SWAT joins them as they raid an old apartment room where all they find is the badly decomposed body of victim number three Theodore Victor Allen strapped to a bed as uh, the SWAT team leader of California played by Phil McKinnon. There you go. Uh, Yeah. He he, he taunts the body. Victor suddenly springs to life in the film's most curdling moment. So let's talk about this scene. And you, you know nobody knew that was going to happen. So no, we, no. Oh, yeah, that that right, shit. Yeah. 
that was a genuine moment for the actors and everything. Like they, they had no clue. Even McGinley, like like McGinley was like Veronica Cartwright of Ridley Scott's Alien. He <laughs> had no fucking clue that this dude was not a fucking prop that was going to just spring to life. And what I dig too is how is how they got there. Like that you come into the room. One thing I love was when the when the SWAT team kicks open that bedroom door. And they all got their shotguns with the spot, you know, the flashlights on the end. Double flashing lights, right, yeah. Um, and it's that, that slow motion focus pull from, like, that pulls away from the door. Like, you just pull back and, like, Howard Shore score kicks up to, like, eerie level 11, you know. So, you know that, like, you, without seeing it, you feel that these guys are seeing something horrifying. And then it cuts to this room of this, you know, decrepit dude on a bed and like from from corner to corner the entire ceiling is nothing but those pine tree air fresheners yeah that's one of the top one of the squad guys wretch i mean the um the swat guys wretches and you know this guy's seen some shit so right like if it's bad enough to make this guy vomit it's got to be bad right right and what he did to cover up the smell was he bought like like 500 fucking car air fresheners and <laughs> hanging them from this this dude victor's ceiling but uh yeah man so i i, I wanted to acknowledge the fact that uh, i totally forgot mcginley shows up in this movie until this scene just now um today and the fact that that whole spring to life thing was completely like off book off script fancy just wanted to capture the reaction on camera and i think it works and I, it's um, also worth mentioning um, the, the 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 body's hands missing because it's revealed that John Doe removed it to basically frame him because uh, that's that's the hand that he ends up using to write you know to to, to, to leave his markings so that when you, know, when, you, when you see the arm that it was severed from it's clearly been gone for a while the wound has been sutured like the flesh is healed over it's not like a fresh wound whatsoever. And this dude, yeah, is like, it, it looks gnarly as shit, dude. It it reminds me of um, if you've ever seen the movie Jeepers Creepers, there's a scene where they go down into the hole and they find this like body with like, it's 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 kind of like looks just like that. The way the wound was just you know taken off and just not attended to, and the, the skin kind of just flaps over and heals out. It's it's really gnarly looking. It, it's yeah, it's yeah. Not like just like really thick. Like they're like half yeah. stitches going up the forearm, like you know, yeah, you know. So like at that moment, you pick up the fact that okay, this guy's hand was used, but it wasn't cut off recently, and the dude's laying there, obviously fucking just rotting away. He weighs less than a hundred pounds. He's like his his teeth are protruding because his flesh is starting to wither back into bone, and and he didn't do it. To, to frame victor he did it to lead them to victor because he wanted yeah the, it, it's beside the point if if they don't find these these you know his work that's that's the point of it so um and they they find those pictures that the first ones dated a year to the day that they're in the room yeah so like he's been there for he's been there for exactly one year um, it's revealed that he had a smorgasbord of drugs in his system, but his brain, even if much, um, he bit off his tongue. So he couldn't talk even if he had, you know, his brain uh, functioning. He says that he'd go into shock right now if you shined a flashlight at his eyes. 
only adding to the gruesome detail. Yeah, and, um, and, that, and, and I forget the actor's name, but that doctor is played by uh, Dan the Man Levitan from Good Morning Vietnam. I don't know why, I just always recognize him. <laughs> he's Howard Stern's dad in private parts, too. That's right, he's Howard Stern's dad in private parts. <laughs> and we all know that I've corrupted fucking, you know, Barry Lemons' Good Morning Vietnam for my film effect intro, so I'm a big fan of that. But I was just, for whatever reason, I was like, oh, look, it's Dan the Man Levitan. <laughs> And that's, that's yeah, he also like, plays that, uh he also plays Andy Kaufman's dad, Man on the Moon. Yeah, oh, that's does. right. That's You're right. right. He, yeah, yeah, right. He did. He so just celebrity fathers. So yeah. real quick, what this uh this site here has to say about this one is this was a representation of another deadly sin, sloth. The avoidance of physical or spiritual work. Victor was in no condition to give a statement about what happened to him uh and who did it. His whole body had started to decay, uh, to decay, and he had chewed off his own tongue. By this time, we realized that John has planned this well for years, leaving no fingerprints or loose ends, but the purpose is still unknown. Yeah, when, this, and, and now, that, now that we're on this topic, not to cut you off, Justin, I'm sorry, but yeah, it just, really just, just came to mind. To, I mean, it's established when when the, they're getting ready to go in for the raid before they actually, you know, get to Victor's apartment. They talk like, okay, here's the prince. It leads back to this, you know, this guy goes by Victor. You know, he's, you know, he's a known drug user, a known drug dealer. So, obviously, this guy was probably high as a fucking kite a year ago when, you know, Doe got access to him and strapped him to the fucking bed. But then this dude had to fucking lay there and detox with no way of getting a fix or a fill for that fix, which is torture in and of itself for somebody who's become drug dependent. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yep. definitely. Yeah. You know, and, and like the malnourishment and the chewing off of your tongue. I mean, you're, you're literally your body's now depending upon that shit and he doesn't have access to it. He's just slowly fucking withdrawing without any assistance whatsoever and that's got to be torture in and of itself and mm -hmm. like i, I want to jump back a little bit to, to the part where they're in the station leaving to go there they all assume that victor's the killer mills mm -hmm. and somerset know better they you know it doesn't yeah, fit the killer's mo yeah right he's yeah. not our somerset, somerset says our, our killer seems to have more purpose so those two know going in that this isn't the guy they're, they're going to find something but this isn't the guy um, well, that also that that plays back to a line that that, that he has a, 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 just a few minutes earlier, where they're talking about picking up the pieces. He goes, "What do we do? We find another clue. Ultimately, they just lead to more clues. They don't right, lead to what's clue. going on. Right? The clue just leads to another clue. All we're doing is is, is tracking breadcrumbs, and there, there's breadcrumbs as you know, as far as yeah, I can see, as long as the day is long. You know, so yeah, that's what it is. Is you know, the precinct thinks, all right, we got our man. We're going to go get him. We're going to put an end to this shit." These two guys know a little better. Well, we just found one clue to take us to potentially another clue. And sure enough, that other clue is, you know, Sloth, a.k.a. Victor. And uh, then the um, the ride over there where they recount, uh, Mills recounts the story of the cop getting shot. You know, yeah, they're having to draw their guns. Yeah, he has Somerset. Somerset's like, you know, I've, I've never had to shoot the gun before. And Mills is like, well, I drew it once, shot it once. And he talks about the cop getting shot next to him, and he dies on the ride to the ambulance, the, the ride to the hospital, the ambulance. And, and Somerset just has this look on his face where it's the disillusionment setting in even further and further. It's another nail in the coffin. Like, he's just, 
beyond done with this whole way of life at this point. Right, right. And, and that's something I picked up on today for the first time was when it cuts back, when, 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 when Mills was telling that story about a, you know, a raid where he was, you know, the second unit, you know, uh, 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 um, you know, just patrol standard uniform patrol officer coming in. He's a little jittery and his, you know, the guy next to him gets shot, spun him around. He's got to route him to the hospital until he died. He can't even remember his name. Right. He's whacking his brain to remember the guy's name. And it cuts back to just this d- distraught look on, you know, Morgan Freeman's face yeah. in the backseat of that car. And that's when I realized today where it's like, okay, yeah, he is Sheriff Ed Tom Bell. He's right. at the end of his rope. He's got no, there are no country for these old men anymore. He doesn't have it in him. He can't see, you know, the world that he took this job in is not the world he's living in now. Right. All right. So at home, Somerset gets a phone call from Tracy. There's a conversation of jazz. Uh, no, uh, the, there's a, there's, there's, I'm sorry. I want to have a conversation of jazz. That was my note here. There's jazz playing in the background. Um, and I think, Sean, you mentioned it earlier, the, the, the jazz um, that, that Somerset plays. I'm yeah, right I that Tracy plays it at that dinner. Okay, but in this scene here, it's... it's um, Coming from Somerset. Somerset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I just... it's, it's I, I forgot that you already mentioned it, and it's something that I've, you know, just... Brushing up on no, but so, no, that that that's like triggering something that I noticed today is that there are connections, <clears throat> like you know, a frame of mind connections or spiritual connections between Somerset and Tracy, and Somerset and John Doe. Mills is kind of the outside character; he shares yeah. the least with each of them. And you saying that bit about the jazz, maybe that's why it's just kind of a a subtle linkage that that had that shows you another way that Tracy and um, Somerset have this sort of connection that's not spoken. You know, it's just pure coincidence that these two people have met and, and formed something of a friendship. And they have there's these little subtle things that connect them throughout the movie, and that that could be one of them. Is the jazz? Movie. I, you know, I never I never thought about that, but you're right because I would look at it like. Um, Somerset, Somerset relates to Tracy on almost like the cultural level, you know, mm-hmm. and but he, I don't want to say relates to John Doe, but at least understands and sees the, I don't think spiritual is the right term, but understands why this guy feels the need to paint the message that he's painting. Yeah, they share a disillusionment with the the modern world. That right. they, they go about it in different ways, but they, exactly. they yeah, he wants to, that. Yeah, he wants to clean it up, and Doe wants to burn it down. But they, right. they, they 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 both have you know the positivity and result in mind. Let's wake these fuckers up, and you know, let's get them out of the doldrum that we're living in. Let's let's improve life for itself. And yeah, I never thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, he and Mills is on the outside. He's almost like the pretty boy, you know, high, you know, star quarterback, all naive and shit, who's just thrust at the front, gung ho, not really knowing what's going on, and acting more out of emotion and passion, which comes yeah. into play in the final scene, obviously. Right. Um, all right. So, right. Mills is the outsider. I never thought about that, but that's a good point, Justin. 
Thank you. Tracy Tracy says that she needs someone to talk to and asked if uh, he'll meet her at 1030 the next morning at the diner. He doesn't really say much of anything, and she's just quick to hang up all of a sudden. Um, then we cut to the next morning at the diner. Somerset tells her uh, just to tell David how she feels. She says she's lonely and upstates a different type of environment. She says that she's been trying to get into schools here, but the conditions are horrible. She's beating around the subject with them before revealing she's pregnant, and she hates it. Why don't you tell me what's really bothering you, Tracy? David and I are going to have a baby. Oh, Tracy. I don't think I'm the, I'm the one to talk to about this. I hate this city. I had a relationship once. It was very much like a marriage. We got pregnant. This was a long time ago. I remember getting up one morning and going to work. Just another day like any other, except it was the first day after I knew about pregnancy. And I felt this fear for the first time ever. I remember thinking, how can I bring a child into a world like this? How can, how can a person grow up with all this around them? I told her I didn't want to have it. And over the next few weeks, I wore her down. I want to have children. I can tell you now that I'm, I know, I mean, <laughs> I'm positive that I made the right decision. But there's not a day that passes that I don't wish that I had made a different choice. If you don't keep the baby, I mean, if that's your decision, don't ever tell them that you'll be pregnant. But if you choose to have this baby, you spoil that kid every chance you get. That's about all the advice I can give you, Tracy. Let me ask this, guys. Uh, so, why are we so fans of David Fincher again, knowing that you're in for a depressing experience no matter what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't... I'm not saying that we're fans of David We Fincher. are fucking fans, You know, let me finish. I'm not saying we're fans of David Fincher because we're in for a depressing... Because, let's face it, I can't think of a happy-go-lucky David Fincher film I've ever seen. But the guy paints despair and anguish in a very palatable way. Like something that, that even though, you know, you really may not want to be watching, you're still intrigued to stay to see what happens next. And I think, again, that's his milieu. I've used that fucking word twice now. 
but that that's his that's his goddamn bread and butter. You know, Dragon Tattoo not a fucking pleasant read by a long shot. Not a pleasant watch either. You know, Gone Girl, I'm sure it was an uncomfortable read. Game sure wasn't a comfortable watch. The game, no. you know, uh, the game is the closest thing to an uplifting ending I've ever seen David Fincher deliver. When you find that it was all set up with millions of dollars of fucking Michael Douglas's money. That's as close as you get to a happy David Fincher ending. The rest what of it about, is- What about Benjamin Button? I've never seen that though. I've only seen it once, and I really want to go back and look at it again because I own it, um, and <laughs> I feel like I've given it enough time. It's been more than ten years. I want to take that. But again, it doesn't—you know—it it, 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 it doesn't end on a happy note. It's a very downtrodden story of existence, and that's that—that's what Fincher excels upon. And I mean, it's. it's- it's the weird word to use, but that's part of the fun of it is the darkness of, of his movies. Like, I don't want everything to be a fucking, you know, a, a blockbuster. I talked about it earlier. You know, I'm burnt out on superhero movies, so I need right. a movie like this as a, a palate cleanser from time to time. Um, yeah, hence, hence part of the reason why I probably went and saw this thing beat up with a fucking hangover two, day, two weeks after opening because I needed somebody else to feel a little worse than me. Yeah, I just I enjoy seeing that side of life or things that I wouldn't want to see in real life from two blocks away. I get to experience them through the safety of a movie, you know. Right. Like I thank God I'm not going through that. At least I'm safely removed here, you know, in my comfortable seat with my popcorn. Yeah, it's like like Requiem for a Dreams, another yeah. one, or I right. gotta get the obligatory mention of a Serbian film. You know, it's the yeah. same deal. Alright, so uh, Somerset <laughs> tells Tracy about his ex and how he wore her down. Tracy says that she doesn't want to have children. So Somerset tells her that he can tell her now that he's positive, that he made his decision, but there's not a day that passes where he doesn't wish that he made different choices or made a different choice. He says if she decides not to have the child, she should never tell David. But if she does, then spoil that child every little bit that she can. She thanks him before he leaves. And then we just cut back to the the desk, Somerset and um, Mills, and Somerset's reading the landlord's account on Victor, saying that he never gave any problems and it always paid rent on time. David is all but is, he's all in all skeptical. Somerset brings up how they found him exactly one year later and without a hand, so it could be used for fingerprints. He says this killer is patient and methodical, pretty much. It's the the call him a lunatic. This is this is when the like Pitt delivers one of and I like this line is stuck with me ever since I saw this and I think it's you know my favorite five seconds of the film you know because like Somerset's going on and on about how the guy's preaching and you know he's got a message and this and that and David's talking about how he's just a lunatic but I love the line where he's just like <laughs> fucking Mills blows him off he goes he's a nutbag. Just because a fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. <laughs> I don't know why, but I just love his delivery on that line. So we got the two heading to the library, and then we see them meeting up with uh, Mark Boone Jr. at a pizza joint. Oh, wait, who are you? The obligatory Brad, uh, Brad Pitt eating scene. We finally get to see Brad Pitt eat. He's sitting there watching potato chips in the library. Was, was I supposed to take note of that? But I mean, it's a fucking Brad Pitt movie. I've been waiting for the guy to eat for like an hour at this point while I was watching. 
Finally, I'm supposed to be watching Brad Pitt for his food scenes. You've never seen. You tell me, name me one movie you've seen Brad Pitt in where he does eat something. True Romance. Exactly. No, it's True Romance. He's eating bong hits. All right, so I I digress. But yeah, Mark Boone Jr. as the fucking greasy FBI agent. Yeah, Mark Boone Jr. who uh, turned up in a lot more '90s films than I remember. Yeah, Memento. Uh, uh, John Coulter's Vampires. Um, (laughs) I mean, I Begins. I still know you did last summer. Uh, Trees Lounge. You guys ever seen Trees Lounge? I know it, but I've never watched it. Oh yeah, Steve Buscemi. Uh, right. Direct stars, yeah, yeah, yeah I've always, uh, mainly because of Trees Lounge, but I've, I've I've always liked Mark Boone Jr. Yeah. Um, and my question about this particular scene here is, um, so what's going on with uh, Mills and his sudden homophobia in this scene? Anybody else pick up on that? Hey, he's just—he's I, I, just like, will you please at least just get across me so it doesn't look like I don't want people to think we're dating. I think that was more. No, I mean, he drops an F bomb in this. Sounds great. He dropped an F bomb earlier. I was like, was, "That's a bit extreme." Holy shit! It was, oh, it was the mid nineties guys. Yeah. I know, I know, I know, yeah. I know, I know. It's just funny. It's just like, damn. When you look back on stuff like that, it's like, yeah, Christ, pretty. We never get away with that today. Yeah, dude, I didn't. I didn't catch the F bomb being dropped. I just assumed it's very, it's, 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 it's really quick, but it's definitely <laughs> her. I noticeable. It's when he's trying to read Dante and he gets frustrated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. No. You know um, what? I, I, I it never crossed my mind. I, I I didn't even think of when he said that. You know that word during the whole Dante scene in the car. I thought that was just you know character frustration that I probably would have said the same way at that time at my age. Um, and then this scene in the di- in the pizza joint where he's like sit across me, so we don't think we're dating. I thought that was just like a throwaway line of comedic dialogue. I never looked at it as homophobic. But What's because Boone Jr. sits down and right, it establishes the, the money under the table, yeah. right? So, uh, why do you give him the money? Well, because the two wait at the barbershop where Somerset explains to Mills how the library records are tapped into FBI information that they have stored. He says the FBI's computer will tell them who's reading Paradise Lost and how to scout her. Boone Jr. returns with a manila envelope for Somerset, revealing the location of their John Doe. Uh, they get to the apartment door and knock, and when they do so, they spot a man approaching them as he drops his grocery bag and fires off a gun. Mills gives chase through the building after the man that leads into a fire escape uh, after the man leads into a fire escape where he uh, knows Actually, hold, stand up. Hold on, hold on. I, now that you're at this scene, I, I, I have to note that you skipped over a very major spot not j- just a few scenes ago. What did I after, skip over? Well, after they they haul Victor's, you know, pre-decomposed body out of the hospital, I mean, you know, at, at, out of his apartment and stuff, you got Mills and Somerset in the hallway talking to each other when a photographer shows up trying to ask him questions and start snapping pictures and Brad Pitt chases that photographer away. And that's when um Somerset tells Mills Mills like how the hell do they get here so quick? He goes, they pay a lot of money to people in the police force. You skipped right over that part, but yeah, right, 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 right between Victor's you know, 
the sloth scene and this scene is that scene of them in the stairwell with this photographer who steps up to the steps, asking them questions, starts taking photos, and it's going to kind of come into play later on. I wanted to bring that up because I didn't realize we had missed it until you get to the spot where they're outside of John Doe's apartment and dude shows up at the end of the hall with a bag of groceries. My bad for going on, but you, sir, continue. Well, you, sir, are the one who's wrong because that scene happens after all this. So let me continue and you can stop fucking cutting me off. Anyway, Mills gives chase through the fucking building. He enters his hand at the fire escape. Uh, the chase continues into a rainy alley where Mills ends up being knocked down with a goddamn tire iron. Are we sure Mills isn't brain dead? He was brain dead. Legit, le- legit question. Legit question. You get hit over the fucking head like that with a tire iron, you ain't gonna get up and just shrug it off like YOLO. That shit's gonna fucking concuss you, knock you out, make you fucking see Tweety Star, Tweety Birds, and little stars. It's all that shit. He had his um, bell rung pretty good from that because he it wasn't even like once John Doe leaves after holding the gun against his head, he doesn't get right up. Like he got his bell rung good. Well, you know, Brad Pitt really hurt his arm in that scene. Yeah, he would like. I think it's the shot when he's running over the hoods of the, the cars to get across the, the street. I think he, he like his and arm went through a windshield. Is the story. Yeah, and he and he had to have surgery, but it just so happened the scene ended with an an injury, so they worked it in, and that's why his right. arms ring for the you know most of the movie. Yeah. So the man pulls a gun on Miles on uh, Mills as he's uh the, the man pulls a gun on Mills, but then suddenly takes off before Somerset can get his slow ass there. Then the two go back into the room, or they go to the room, the door, I should say, where Mills tries to break in, but Somerset acts as the voice of reason and tells him they need a reason to knock on the door. It'll fuck everything up if he breaks in. He backs down, but then suddenly kicks the door in saying there's no point in arguing anymore. Mills is a fucking loose cannon, an even bigger one than I remember him being. And now, you can have your scene, Sean. Mills pays a homeless woman to falsify a story to the cops to back their alibi for breaking in under just cause. Inside, they find bottles of aspirin in the Bible, clothes pressed and hung, along with a vial of Victor's hand. Somerset finds a receipt from a sex shop pinned over a photo of a woman. Somerset finds a room that resembles a small library with all the journals. Um, one of which... Wait. While you're gathering your thought, did you notice that as Somerset was going along and looking at all the little individual glass cases, each one was devoted to one of the murders? Yeah, the trophy cases. He's got yeah, the one. first one had spaghetti sauce. And he's got he's got the you know the the the, the legal books from from the de- from the yeah, attorney yeah, the clippings from the newspaper about gold yep. getting uh, he's gold got the pedophile um, off yeah he's got the little he, those are his little trophy cases right. for, his, for his current victims yeah so Ed tell me again how we get to the scene where um, Detective Mills discovers the photographs already developed that were just taken a moment ago. Oh, so um, I skipped over it because I was looking over my notes while you were just talking and talking away. Because that's the scene where Mills goes, Detective Mills, M-I-L-L-S, fuck off. Just like I'm telling you right now, fuck off. Before I'm I boot your ass from this fucking Zoom call. Anyway. It doesn't happen that way. 
Can I can I just jump in real quick with an observation? Please do, please do before I kill this motherfucker over here. It has nothing to do with the movie. It's you two. Like I love one of my favorite things about the show is the way you two argue with each other throughout every episode. And I was laughing so hard because you have the same exact arguments over text. I was pissed in my fucking pants laughing. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. The photograph of Mills is taken outside of Victor's apartment, not outside of John Doe's apartment. I know. If you were listening to me, you goddamn piece of shit, I was trying to tell you that I had to backtrack a fucking two, two scenes back, but I skipped over it in my notes. Because you were just blabbering, 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 and I was trying to scroll oh, to get so, myself to where so the fuck I was. Rather than, rather than accept, come up and some blame and say, you know what, you were right about that, I did gloss over that scene, you decided instead to point out my own fallacies at me. Why don't you point that high-powered finger perception at yourself, pal, and consider your missed gaff? Where's our gaffer on this episode? <laughs> So yeah. yes, ladies and gentlemen, I was right. The photograph of Mills was taken outside of Baker's apartment prior to the chase in the, in the rainy alleyway when Brad Pitt fractured his elbow. It was not taken outside of John Doe's apartment because how in the fuck would the goddamn picture be developed five minutes later in the bathroom? Couldn't happen. But I was right. You were wrong. I digress. Are you done? Do you feel better? Uh, yeah, I'm going for about another half an hour if you really got the time. <laughs> well, at this fucking rate, we've got about two more hours to go if you keep on blabbering. Anyway. <laughs> I love you both, by the way. <laughs> I, you I hate you, too. <laughs> so what if, God damn No, I'm legit lost in my notes now. God damn it. Oh, going like I do. You can start scratching shit off. They found the uh the notebooks. Morgan Freeman. Yeah, they're the notebook. No, we no, they they're 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 yeah, they find the notebook. Um and there's a lot of them, dude. There's, there's, there's the old school like black the little composition notebooks that we used to get in like Oh, right, here we go. So yeah, so they, they the notebook, it's like a fucking small library with all nothing but journals. And he writes like there's there he's he, he like writes small and single spaced and right. Like, dude, and, and one of which he, he looks at, he opens one up, and it's just filled to the brim with words. It's just filled, <laughs> page by page, front and back. Now, did you um, guys know that they legitimately spent fifteen grand and over two months, literally filling every one of those composition books up? You're echoing again. Are you pissing? I had to walk in to get a beer. Relax. Oh, no, okay. did you guys know? That like Fincher, even though you never see it on the screen outside of the one notebook that um, Somerset's flipping through, they literally spent two months with a production assistant handwriting shit in these composition books. Oh, I believe yeah, it. It's I small ass writing. Yeah. I mean, attention to detail, but Christ, it shows up on scene for what? Three seconds in the opening credits and four seconds in the film, but they made 2,000 of these fucking notebooks like that. Yeah, it's crazy. Mills finds a photography room uh, with the bathroom filled with photos from the photographer that was in the hallway from scenes bag. You got see if you're listening to this podcast, you're still with us. You've seen the movie. You know where we are. You, oh, you, you, yeah, you know Sean's right. So let's move on. He had his fucking day. Um, at the scene, forensics for inform Mills that they uh, couldn't find a print 
And then we see Somerset reading one of the journals to Mills. Um, yeah, just like you said, the amount of books. Uh, and they even mentioned how long it would take, even with 50 cops, to read yeah, all the would, journals. Yeah, I'm reading 24 hours a day. It would take us two months to get through all this shit. Yeah. It's insane. Three, four feet of composition books surrounding Detective Somerset sitting on this on this easy chair. So there's, you know, it's a ton of shit in there. It's just guys. It's just this guy's train of thought and just crazy scribblings and cutouts and news clippings and shit. Right. We could use some more men here. Hey man, I'm doing the best I can. You get with all this. There are 2,000 notebooks on these shelves, and each notebook contains about 250 pages. Get it? Anything about the killings? What sick, ridiculous puppets we are, and what a gross little stage we dance on. What fun we have, dancing, fucking, not a care in the world. Not knowing that we are nothing. We are not what was intended. Oh, wait, there's a lot more. On the subway today, a man came up to me to start a conversation. He made small talk, a lonely man talking about the weather and other things. I tried to be pleasant and accommodating, but my head began to hurt from his banality. I almost didn't notice it had happened, but I suddenly threw up all over him. He was not pleased, and I couldn't stop laughing. No dates. Placed on the shelves of no discernible order. Just his mind poured out on paper. Looks like a life's work. If we had 50 men reading in 24-hour shifts, it'd still take too much. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. So a hidden phone rings and Mills finds it and answers it. It's John Doe himself taunting Mills and telling him how much he admires being surprised the way they found him. He says he'd love to tell him more, but he doesn't want to ruin the surprise. This film is like watching a puzzle play out right in front of you. It's it fascinating is. because unlike the other imita imitators, this film succeeds in its purpose. It, it does. It really does. I'll agree with you there. It's, it is like putting the pieces together and you kind of feel like, you as a viewer, especially in the initial viewing, are like, all right, I'm smart. I think I'm smart. I could try to fucking solve this, too. And you're just as perplexed as Mills and Somerset are. One thing I can't believe that I didn't notice until today, and I'm actually glad I didn't. And let's face it, we all love the ultimate surprise um, when it's delivered upon us in the denouement of the film. But even sitting there in the theater like not recognizing the voice on the phone. That was the first time we hear Spacey. Right. And that's the thing. Like, cause at the time when this thing was like, nobody knew he was in it. I remember like, like, I don't know about you, Ed, cause you, you know, you, your, your first viewing was on, was on video. Did you know that Spacey was involved at all? Did you even know? Who I don't was? remember. I don't remember being honest with you. For me. And I'm, I'm sure for Justin, the same way like that, I, like I was the, that shock was delivered to me in real time yeah. in the 30 minutes of the film. Like he deliberately was left out of all marketing and everything else because he was by 95, he was a known actor, you know, yeah, between and, this and outbreak and, and let's face it, Kaiser Sose. Yeah. That's, I thought that also had uh, 95 was also that that's right. Yeah. right. 95 was the year of the Kevin Spacey twist. But the fact that, like, we didn't know it, and then all of a sudden the reveal fucking happens, you're like, wow! Like, the, that sudden, like, you, I remember sitting in a the theater by myself and having this, like, 
not exploding feeling come out of my chest, but like I audibly gasped, like, holy shit, look who it is. You know, and oh, the fact and- that he recognized his voice on the phone. Obviously, now going back with multiple viewings, you know who John Doe is, so it's easier to pick up on him. But he's a distinguishable voice. The fact that I couldn't identify it at the time in 95 really right. surprised me today watching. And even and, as the photographer, he does a little, like he puts on a voice, but like now that yeah. I know, I can hear that it's Kevin Spaten. Not yeah, to bring up a sore subject between you two, the photographer scene, but um, you could tell like now knowing that it's Kevin Spaten. Right. Like I went in looking for that today, like when, when the photographer shows up and he's deliberately out of focus. Now there's a split second around the 57 minute mark when right before Brad Pitt swats him away. If you pause it, you can kind of make out Kevin Spacey and the out of focus image. But I I was more listening for it and I'll be damned if, yeah, it wasn't a distinct, it was, it was Kevin Spacey doing, doing an accent, doing a voice, like a nasally voice. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, and he's got a bit of like a, like, uh, like some sort of like borough dialect, you know right. what I mean, like right. like a Brooklyn or Staten Island type accent to his character, but it's it's clearly him, much like you know we were surprised that Verbal Kent and Kaiser Soze were one of the scene, you know, four months prior when we we had all went and saw Usual Suspects. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to hearing him on the phone today, I'm like, damn, why did I ever pick that up? It was like when I, when I recognized Sigourney Weaver right away, you know, at the end of Cabin in the Woods, before she showed up, I recognized her voice and I nudged Ed. I'm like, holy shit. And he didn't know until she hit the screen, but I knew by her voice. Right. You know? I want to let the record show that I did know prior to her showing up. But that's because you were a fucking net nerd. You were reading all the Joe Blow and Ain't a Cool News type shit. No, I, it was sort of, I was surprised with you, homie. I, I could pick up on voices too, you know. I remember saying to you, you know who that is, and you're like, who? I'm like, just you don't remember that motherfucker. That was ten goddamn years ago. You don't have a memory of that long. I was a little bit drunk, but I wasn't fucking shit faced. I remember some of it. All right, real quick, a little sidebar. I just want to mention, um, well, actually, just compliment the three of us for being able to be adults and talk about Kevin Spacey the artist and not be like, oh, can't talk about him. Oh, no, no, no. Fuck that. We can and we are. Yeah, um, I'm not going to not watch Seven because of some shit that we found out about him 25 years after the fact. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But a lot of people like kind of like stray away from the topic of Kevin Spacey and shit. It's like, well, let's not just turn a blind eye to the fact that he had a fucking career that lasted decades. You know, I'm, I'm not going to disregard all that shit because of his personal affairs and some shit that happened that you know i might I, I, I believe the victims and everything it, it, right. but it, it's but it, it the personal and and professional i can separate the two the art from the artist all that noise i'm, yeah. I'm actually glad i'm actually glad you brought that up because you and i had this conversation a few months ago and Justin and I had it uh, very recently when, when we were discussing uh, Dragged Across Concrete. And I was saying kind of the same thing about Mel Gibson. And you both had said to me, like, you know what? I, 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 I'm the guy who's going to separate the art from the artist. And I needed to try to find that. Like, I, I wanted to be that dude, but there was a part of me who's like, nah, I probably shouldn't look at that work no matter how much I liked it. But, you know, you guys both had said, yeah, okay, so their work is one thing their personal life is something else. 
we don't have to, you know, make them go hand in hand, separate the art from the artist. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to go out there and burn my copies of fucking American Beauty and See No Evil, Hear No Evil just because of, you know, shit that happened between him and Anthony Rat back in the 80s. Yeah. That it's just not come to light after like the last four or five years, whenever that shit started. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So good on all of us for being able to just be adults and, and keep it going. So let's keep it going. And, uh, it was, it was, it was that conversation with you guys and the fact that I had to stop and think like, well, wait a minute. That means I can't look at any other Quentin Tarantino movie ever again because Weinstein had his hands involved. Right. You, yeah, it doesn't end to start going down that road. You know what I mean? There, there's nothing. Right. Exactly. That's You're right. Sure. It's like, oh, I can't watch a fatty Arbuckle film because what happened to that poor prostitute in 1937? Right. Like, how the hell are we ever going to get art? They're made by fucking crazy people to begin with. Right. You know, so, so I, and it took me a little bit to kind of overcome that hurdle. But it was, you know, I will say it's a bit, it's, you know, a, a good bit of it was conversation that I've had with both of you guys about, yeah, look, I fully agree with you on this point, but let's appreciate the artist. You know, let's appreciate the art. And not sanctify the owners. Right. Um, so this phone call and all, it, it, it leads us to the next victim. Um, they go to a sex shop that, that leads them to John Doe. Only the detectives arrive too late to stop a man forced by Doe at gunpoint to kill a prostitute by raping her with a custom-made bladed strap on, representing lust. Now, this is fucking Leland Orser here. Yeah. Get this fucking thing off of me! Get this fucking yeah. thing off of me! He now, played this know? role so well, he did it two or three times in like the next the, the next couple of years, like He'd have uh, one scene in a movie where he did essentially the same scene. Alien Resurrection yeah, yeah, exactly. comes to mind. <laughs> right. like, brings to mind that scene in Very Bad Things. And that bad too, things exactly. Another, right? <laughs> you know, he, he has that. He has that fucking breakdown, and you know, the diner, Very Bad Things. Now, did you guys? Do you guys know about like what Orser did to prepare for that scene in the interrogation room? No. Yeah, like he. I, like, I don't want to know. No, this it's, it's pretty hardcore, man. I mean, it's 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 like you know, it's I don't want to say method, but it's more than just Charlie Sheen staying up and doing blow for three days before filming a day for care uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like before they started filming, like that day before they called action, specifically in the interrogation room, like he got himself. He would he he deliberately started hyperventilating. So that when they time by the time Fincher called action, his body was already deprived of oxygen. So like they would kind of leave him be for a couple of minutes to prep for this. Let's let's face it, it's a one and done shot for this character in this movie. Pretty much. That's it's but like he, the one time he's in the film and that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he, he so, would he would sit there and get himself to he would he would start breathing deeply to hyperventilate to the point where his whole body was deprived of oxygen. So he's constantly gasping for air with every you know word that he says, and he's dripping sweat. And it's right. it's for this interrogation scene. I thought I I just thought that should go on record that Leland Orson kind of went Leland Orson went kind of went above and beyond, you know, for this you know what would be a you know two day on call shoot for a character hey you yeah. got him work for the next five years doing the same oh, thing yeah. and you got the mary jean triple so. 
Who did he marry? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're married. Who? Gene Triplehorn from Janine um, Triplehorn. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Basic Instinct. I think they actually hooked up on the set of Very Bad Things. Wow. Yes. But yeah, they're yeah, they're they're still married, aren't they, Ed? Yeah, they are. Yeah, 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 they're together. Yeah. Um, no, no, I don't think I ever realized that. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I always like finding that out. You know, like when I found out she right. and working were together. Yeah, right. it's kind of like, all right, cool. A little Hollywood power cover that keeps it a little quiet, you know? Yeah. And we also got Michael Massey here in this this scene. Mm. That's his name. You talking about the dude that works the fucking window at, at, at the sex joint? Yeah, well, he's uh, he was Fun Boy from The Crow who killed Brandon Lee. I couldn't place him. I wanted to wait till you brought it up. I didn't look him up deliberately. I had a feeling like I'm a, I know this guy from somewhere. Ed's going to bring it up when we record. And I, so I was waiting. So that's who he is. So my, 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 real quick, my note for this scene here with these two, I got uh, Leland Orser, and I put, um, who's really taken, who, who's really dialing it up. Um, he's down, he's down it up to <laughs> 11 with his performance. <laughs> Meanwhile, my man Massey's showing like these fucking horny fucks come in and out all the time. It's like night and day between these two in this scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Somerset Mills were discussing apathy at the bar. Uh, a classy bar for a change. Um, it's just not. I'm not used to seeing like a scene with like a, a fine restaurant or something. You know, like this bar that they're in is not your typical dive bar that they're in for most of the film, with like decaying walls and shit. You know what I mean? Like this is kind of like a breath of fresh air uh, as opposed to the rest yeah. of the film. And this is the scene where I decided, you know what? Whatever I thought about Brad Pitt, I'm completely wrong. This guy's a fucking actor. He's an awesome actor. Like my whole opinion, I you know I liked everything he was doing up until this point. But this scene, his his back and forth with Morgan Freeman, I was like, this guy's a really fucking good actor. Yeah. I, and then I, he goes home to his wife was, and tells her that he loves her. It was it was this movie. I can't say specifically what scene, but much like we said in the beginning, Justin, I was in your camp. I'm like, ah, he's just. You know, a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Hollywood heartthrob, and the guy actually had talent in his bones and a drive, you know, to be, you know, to become an actor. And, and I, so, somewhere in this film is where I is where I kind of shift the gears. I'm like, okay, um, I don't have a crush on him, but I'm going to go seek out his work because I like what he does. Right. I like what he delivers. You know. Um, so yeah, and Willis I goes home and. Uh, you know, tells his wife he loves her so much, and then we cut to Somerset, who's laying down with his metronome, and then uh, suddenly breaks it and spends the rest of the evening throwing knives at his wall target. Yeah, he just pulls out a switchblade and he's like tossing at the dartboard. The first shot, first one he throws is a fucking bullseye. Yeah. So then we get the text Sunday. The cops receive a phone call from John Doe confessing to another crime model whose face has been mutilated by Doe. Uh, she was given the option to call for help or live disfigured by cutting off her nose by her face or well, suicide by taking pills. It's cool. It's like, it's like he's got, she's got a, a bottle of sleeping pills glued to one hand. Glued, yeah. And glued and a phone glued to the other. And it represents pride. Exactly. He's like, so he's like, either use this hand, call for help and live and be ugly for the rest of your life. Or use this hand and die with the with the public's image of your beauty. 
you know, cut off her nose to spite her face. And that will be right. a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, go back to this site here. There really wasn't much written down for lust. Uh, nothing that we didn't already discuss. But for pride, it's uh, pride is excessive belief in one's own abilities that interferes with the individual's recognition of the grace of God. It has been called the sin from all from which all others arise. Um, Personal vanity. Yeah, yeah. Nepotism, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Somerset reveals the mills that he's staying till the case is closed or is solved. Inside the police station, John Doe reveals himself. After this, I'm Detective. gone. No big surprise. Detective! You're looking for me. Hey! What's your fucking move? On the fucking floor. Keep away from him! On the fucking floor! I know you. Now! Get out! Get down! On your stomach, piece of shit! Now! All the way! All the way, fucker! Down! Faster! Faster! Faster, fucker! Now! Goes on the ground! Jesus Christ. What the fuck is this? I'd like to speak to my lawyer, please. Detective? Detective? Detective! Yeah! I love that I know you part after the whole detective scream. Yeah, I, I love the reveal though because like it shows it's a long shot, or excuse me, it's a it's a wide actually a wide and long shot from across the street of the precinct. You know, it's that classic like Gotham City police precinct where it's yeah, almost yeah. like a fucking cathedral when you get inside, but it's actually a precinct. You know, and it's, it's it's when Somerset reveals the mills because here we are on Sunday, day seven, would be Somerset's last day, and he tells uh-huh. him, like, you know, I'm going to stay on I'm, until we close the case. And Mills like, don't do me any favors. He goes, No, I'm asking you to do me a favor, keep me on as your partner. So now it's almost like so they they've they've I don't want to say he's gained his respect, but. It's it's like Somerset handing the reins to Mills because he humbles himself and says, "You'd be doing me a favor if you kept me on as your partner till we get to the end of this thing." So then, you mentioned yeah. something that wants me to that wants me to go to a sidebar real quick. Okay. Um, so it's an, it's it's about seven. Um, then and how it the meaning of the 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 number seven for this film. Because it's a lot more than just, you know, you think Seven Deadly Sins. Okay, that's what it plays one. No. So, I never really noticed this until reading this, and I won't be damned if it's fucking right. The time frame of the film is seven days of one week. Somerset is going to retire from the police department in seven days. There are seven murders in this movie. Symbolism is of the seven deadly sins, and the no. time when the parcel arrives in the last scene is at seven oh one. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring it up at the end, but let, but now they're going to let's talk about it, okay? Um, so in the be in, in the beginning of the film, when Somerset gets the call for the gluttony murder, we're exactly seven minutes into the runtime, okay? At the end of the film, 
when Somerset interrupts the delivery van and opens the package and he sees what's in the box and starts pulling out for the SWAT team and everything else. He's like, John Doe has the upper hand. John Doe has the upper hand is exactly seven minutes left in the film. So, yeah, you caught that part at the tail end. Did you caught that catch that part at the beginning now where it starts at the seven minute mark, too? Did you notice that? Uh, I didn't notice that. No, I didn't. So, yeah, you're right. It does. The number seven plays heavily throughout the phonology of the film. Mm -hmm. But seven minutes in is when Somerset gets the call for the gluttony murder. And seven minutes out is when he's like, John Doe has won. John Doe has the upper hand. Nice. In in fact, I don't know if you guys remember. I definitely do. I'm sure Justin does. This film wasn't marketed with the number seven in place of the V. That was changed after the fact. You know, because now oh, it's, Cause it's like that in the credits, isn't it? And it, it is now, but not 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 when it was released, dude. In '95, it was just S E V E N. I well, swore no. on they didn't go back and like change the uh, credit sequence to accommodate a fucking seven in the goddamn I'm title card. Right <laughs> I'm telling you right now <laughs> that number seven was not incorporated into the initial theatrical movie. I'm telling you right now. I, I know the poster, it's spelled out, but I mean, I'm pretty sure that in the, the opening credits, it was always like that. I don't, I, 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 we're, we, we Sean, can listen to yourself. Do not agree to disagree. Listen to yourself first, <laughs> homie. You're thinking, you're trying to convince me and Justin right now that David Fincher went back to his own movie and fucking changed the title card. At some point, are you fucking insane? No, it does not happen. It's not his no. film. It's not, it's, it's not no, him. I'm shutting that shit down. No, not his no further. It's Bob Shea's movie. <laughs> no, this is not Bob Shea's movie. Bob Shea did not produce this movie. It's New Line Cinema. It's Bob Shea's movie. His company, but he didn't. Look, go to the goddamn producer credits. His name is not on there. Bob Shea signs all, all their fucking checks. So at the end of the day, the yeah, and where's Bob Shea today? Huh? He ain't running a new line. I don't, I don't know. How's his brother Linda? Uh, his sister Linda doing? That's his sister, and Linda's doing pretty good, actually. I was going to say, you would know better than I would. Yeah. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, man, I do not, I never, ever, ever remember this film and during the theatrical run. I do not remember it being marketed with the number seven in the title, in the letters, in the poster. None of that. Like, oh, don't, 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 don't you worry. I smell a Twitter poll coming. Oh, well, here it comes. Bring them so, on, you idiots. Don't worry. So let's get back to the uh, the person here, uh, John Doe. His fingertips have been cut off so we can't be identified. Bank traces and credit histories lead them to dead ends. All they know is he's independently wealthy, well-educated, and totally insane. They don't get in. They don't get the question because he's going straight to court. Doesn't make any sense, but he's far from finished, and that's something that Mills and Somerset finally agree on. He's two murders away from completing his masterpiece. What was that? That's saying as soon as he says, "Detectives, I believe you're looking for me," and you know Mills forces him on the ground at a precinct, and he's like, "I'd like to talk to my lawyer." So right away, he does the the smart thing. He lures right the fuck up, and then. You know, that's when we get to your scene where it's what? Uh, Somerset Mills and the captain behind the two-way glass. 
you know, and he's going out. No, he's he's he, going straight to, straight to court. You guys don't get the question. You don't get to interrogate. The so, gonna build a case. so what he does instead is he tells his attorney that there's only two remaining bodies, but he'll only let Mills and Somerset take them there at precisely six o'clock that day. He says that he admires them and claims if they don't accept his offer, then the bodies will never be found and he'll plead insanity. If they accept, he'll sign a full confession right now. Cut to Richard Schiff. The client says there are two more bodies, two more victims hidden away. He will take Detectives Mills and Somerset to these bodies, but only Detectives Mills and Somerset, only at six o'clock today. Why us? He says he admires you. Out of the game. My client claims that if the detectives do not accept this offer, these two bodies will never be found. Frankly, counsel, I'm inclined to let them rot. <laughs> We've got him. Downstairs, locked up, done deal. He's gonna get his free room and board. He's gonna get his free cable TV. Hell, my wife doesn't even have cable. Why are we having these conversations? Mills. No, hey, something stinks. And this one here and his three, yeah, you, and your $3,000 suit and that smug smile on your face dealing for that piece of shit. Mills. I am required by law to serve my clients to oh, the best Jesus of my ability to serve their best interests. We don't make deals here, Mr. Swar. My client also wishes to inform you that if you do not accept, he will plead insanity across the board. Let him try it. I'd like to see him try it. Come on now, Martin. We all know with the extreme nature of these crimes, I could get him off with such a plea. I'm not letting this conviction slide. I can tell you that. He says that if you do accept, under his specific conditions, he will sign a full confession, plead guilty right now. It's your case. Make a decision. Full confession. I'm in. It has to be the both of you. If you were to claim insanity, this conversation is admissible. The fact that he's blackmailing us with his plea. And my client would like to remind you two more are dead. The press would have a field day if they were to find out the police didn't seem too concerned about finding them, giving them a proper burial. If, in fact, there are two more dead. Lab report came up from downtown. They did a quickie on Doe's clothing and fingernails. They found blood from Doe, from him slicing his fingers, blood from the woman whose face he cut off, and blood from a third party, as yet unidentified. I know the three of us, well, at least two of us, uh, are aware of this this character actor. Um, to me, he's you're gonna laugh, but to me. He'll always be Eddie from the Lost World, Jurassic Park. Uh, he's had tons <laughs> of other movies. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. yeah, I know he's had tons of other films under his belt, but for some reason, his his role in the Lost World stands out. Maybe it's the fact that two T Rexes fucking rip him in half. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, the, but yeah, Richard Schiff, Schiff has had like just one hell of a career. It's that's still going. To be honest, what? he's still making appearances. I'll I, I tell you where he made his bones for me was um, as the White House press secretary in Aaron Sorkin's West, West Wing. West Wing, yeah, it, I knew you were going to say that. I never even watched West Wing, but I remember. Hey, dude, I, I, I was late to the game on that. My dad recommended it to me, and I'm like, eh, okay, a soap opera about the White House, whatever. But it's, it's actually surprisingly good, and it's more it's more the performances and the behind the scenes players than you know the dude in the Oval Office that you that you're concerned about and focus on. But yeah, I always, always like Richard Schiff's character as Toby um, in, in the West Wing. Obviously, I've seen him in a ton of more stuff, but he always stands out as the White House press secretary in the West Wing. Yeah, okay. So, 
the DA also reveals lab results from the blood that was on Doe's clothes. When, when John, we didn't say this, but when John Doe, you know, confesses or whatever at the at the precinct, he's he's full, he's got bloody clothes, and yeah, it's revealed all that the, the, the blood on his clothes came from his own the pride victim and a third unidentified person. I never picked up on this tip uh, this tidbit before. Oh, yeah. yeah. Third so, I mean, we know where this is going, but for Ooh, the first I time believe. watching this, I was like, oh, okay. Two bodies. Okay, the unidentified victim. Let's see who this is. Plant that seed while you're there. So Mills tells Somerset, let's finish it, and agree to escort Doe to their final victims. The two have what we now know is their final moment of happiness, thinking it's over and that they're nearing the end of their big case. The two men then are wired up and ready to roll. The chopper takes this guy as the two take off with Joe in the back seat. Hold up, hold up. Before you go any further, I made a note about this scene because it's like they're prepping for the whole transport. They're shaving their chests so they can put on the wire. They have a little, another comedic, like, you know, back and forth dialogue with Brad well, That's Pitt. what I meant. Yeah, that's, that's what I meant. The last moment of happiness here. But then, but then there's, there's, there's a line that Pitt delivers that, that struck me more today than it ever did before. Where he says, where he kind of glances over at Somerset, and Mill says, "If I keep coming coming home late like this, my wife is going to think something's up." <laughs> you know, and that knowing what's about to come, that line strikes a little harder. You know, it struck me a little harder today because he's still, yeah, he's he's up on things. He thinks he's ahead of the game, but you know, or to the second or multiple viewer. David Mills is still behind and you kind of, your heart breaks for him almost in that moment. Cause, right. Cause he hasn't Tracy at all since that morning. And he's like, if I know that, that whole moment with him in bed when he says, I love you like three times to her. That's it. That's the last we see of her. Right. Right. And then he has that comment. If I keep coming home late, you know, Tracy's going to think something's up and he's mm-hmm. kind of loves it all figuring he's eventually going to, you know, slap the cuffs and the collar on this dude and go home for a night you know, a beers and dinner with the wife and the dogs, you know? And right. so that line struck me a little different today um, than it ever had in the past because, you know, you know what's coming. I don't know. It takes. <laughs> yeah. So Somerset tries asking who Doe really is, but he'd rather him focus on the road. Mills tries asking and then questions what makes him so special that everyone should listen. Uh, Doe answers like he's some sort of demigod. Doe tells Mills that he can't win for he he can't wait for him to see the end game. That he's gonna you know he's not gonna want to miss a thing. As they get closer to their destination, now driving in an open power line field, we see Doe in the back getting physically excited, like he's kind of like jerking around in the back seat. Um, huh. I said, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, fidgety, exactly. Like bouncing, you know, shifting cheek to cheek while he's sitting in the back seat, all cuffed up. With a smile, saying they're almost there. Doe expresses his lack of remorse for his crimes, declaring that his victims deserve to die, and professes himself to be a martyr chosen by a higher power to shock the world out of its state of apathy. Uh, Doe also makes. cryptic threatening remarks towards Mills who maintains his belief that Doe is simply insane he tells Mills that he should be thanking him for sparing him Mills says he's no messiah he's yeah, a freak of the week or a t-shirt at best you're a movie of the week at best uh, 
my note here, all caps, Kevin Spacey, man, just acts the shit out of this scene, and I still love every fucking moment of it. Yeah, like you can you, you can see again separating the, you know the artist from the transgressions. You can see the wheels turning in yes. in John Doe's head. You yeah. can see that, he, that that he's that he's already clicked two steps ahead of of, of Somerset and Vaughn. I mean, um, uh, 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 Somerset and Mills, and that he is now. Like his plan is proceeding to clockwork. Yeah, right. And exactly. it starts off with Mills. Mills thinks he's going to needle John throughout this drive, and slowly John Doe just completely dismantles Mills to the point where Mills is put, you know, poking his finger through the cage, like sit the fuck back, shut up. Like he completely right. gets under his skin, and Somerset notices it. Yeah, he rattled him. He's like, yeah. like, 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 like John Doe has rattled David Mills. Yeah, he, he lands a couple solid like uppercuts, uh, uppercuts and right crosses, and just yeah. totally <laughs> fucking dazed. Great, great way to put it, man. Great way to put it, my friend. Uh, so they finally reached their final destination, right near two electrical towers. So I kind of put two and two together this time watching it. Um, the chopper, the, the the wires are there, so the chopper can't get close. Smart right. move. So this movie. Doesn't no, straight never, up tell us. Huh? I, ne- I, I never put that together. I mean, obviously, they. I, I picked up the fact that they didn't want to, you know, let up on the fact that they were trailing the cop car because McGinley's character, California, says we're getting too close. Take it up, you know, a good couple hundred feet. Get up higher. He's going to see it. I, it never dawned on me that he chose that setting specifically so. Yeah, the choppers couldn't, you know, couldn't come beyond those powers. That, that, that literally, Ed, you just, you know, shone the light on that for just now, for real. Yeah, cool. Yeah, man, definitely. It, it doesn't really tell us straight up. It dances around it without completely telling us. But yeah, it's definitely like obvious that that's why he chose that location. Um, so there, there's only if there's only a dead dog present. I didn't do that. <laughs> Doe asked for the time. Definitely <laughs> one. It's close enough. And then takes them to the spot where suddenly an express driver van approaches from over the hill. Somerset drives after the van, leaving Mills alone with Doe, who's happy they now have time to talk alone. Somerset drives, he stops the van uh, with his gun, and the driver says that he's got a package for Detective David Mills. The driver gets it, and uh, it, the, the driver gives him the, the box. Somerset checks the driver out and then lets him go on foot. I'd be pissed if I was that, that fucking delivery driver just doing his job. He's got to go run off on foot. Bastards. So let's break down this scene. Um, so we, we, we can pretty much break down what, what happens now. The, the, the box, um, Morgan Freeman slowly gets it open. The look of shock on, on Morgan, uh, his face, like uh, the, the awe in his fucking, just his look. His whole demeanor when he opens the box and sees what the hell it is. At first, he's like spooked, and then like it's the look on his face. And then we have Joe, Joe. We have Doe and uh, Mills, and basically uh, Somerset's got to get back to Mills because he knows he's eventually going to find out what the hell is in that box. Now, yeah, 
and 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 that's when he's like that's when he hauls out like as soon as he as soon as he cuts into the box and he slowly pulls the you know the cardboard folds away he you tells most to stay back no he he tells the choppers he's like pull you know pull back john doe has the upper hand john doe is the upper hand and us as the viewing audience at least for the first you know our initial viewing we got no idea what's in that box but it shocked the shit out of this season you know seen it all been there done that fucking too old for this shit detective I'm going to open it. When I said I admired you, I meant what I said. It's blood. You've made quite a life for yourself, detective. Mm. You should be very proud. Fuck up, you piece of shit. Stay away from here. Stay away from here now. Don't, don't, don't come in here. Whatever you hear, stay away. John Doe has the upper hand. Mills! Here he comes. What? I wish I could have lived like you did. Shut up. What the fuck are you talking about? Do you hear me, Detective? I'm trying to tell you how much I admire you and your pretty wife. What? Tracy. What'd you fucking say? It's disturbing how easily a member of the press can purchase information from the men in your precinct. I visited your home this morning. After you'd left. I tried to play husband. I tried to taste the life of a simple man. It didn't work out. So, I took a souvenir. Her pretty head. What the fuck is she talking about? Give me your gun. What's going on over there? Put the gun I down. I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Because I envy your normal life. Put the gun down, baby. It seems that envy is my sin. No, oh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? Give me the gun. You just told you. You lie! You're a fucking liar! Shut up! That's what he wants. He wants you to shoot him. No! No! You tell me, you tell me. That's not true. That's not true. You come vengeance, dude. Ah, oh, she's all right. You tell me. You come wrath. Tell me she's all right! So you made her a suspect, David. No! Get through it all the way, you know. No! She begged for her life, Detective. Shut up! She begged for her life. Shut up. And for the life of the baby inside of her. Ah!
Dirt reveals that he himself represents the sin of envy as he envied Mills' life of Tracy and implies that the box contains Tracy's decapitated head. Yeah, he goes at Mills, telling him that Tracy begged for her life and the life the of her box? unborn child. What's in the uh, box? What's in the fucking box? Oh, come on. What's in the damn box? <laughs> oh, man, this goddamn scene. Um, <laughs> like I told you before, Detective, I admire you. I even paid a visit to your house and your pretty wife, Tracy. You'd be surprised what your what your fellow officers information would give up for the right amount of money. And yes. then he go and then he has that look and he's like, he didn't know. Because Mills doesn't know yet. David has no clue he's gonna be a father. No, because he's like when she when he describes, he's like, you know, I tried to be I, I wanted to, to see what it'd be like to just spend a day in the life of, you know, an average man. And your pretty little wife didn't agree, so I took a souvenir. You know, and, I and, took a red. And, and right at this moment here, real quick, I mean to cut you off, but it's very important I bring this up at this moment here. It's exactly the two hour and fourteen second mark. We get a very blink and you miss it flash of Gwyneth, pa Gwyneth Paltrow's head. Yes. Or yeah, it's her it's, face. It's, it's, it's her face, not her head, it's her face. Yeah, it's a quick splice. And I think that is what I was going to bring that up to because I don't know. It's like one of those Mandela effects where people swear they've seen a cut of the film that shows her head in the box. They never feel not. I paused it. I actually got, I was able to pause it right at the no. flash. It's just her face. Right. And that's right. the flash in Mills's head because it happens. He's fighting the urge to shoot him. He's trying to hold back. It flashes. Yeah face for that brief second and that's when he walks up and shoot that that's the moment where he makes up his, his mind that he's going to shoot him right right and and i think i think it was that like that what what do you call it like subliminal marketing right the whole, you know split second you know splice like the dick and fight club exactly and that's what i thought about that's exactly yeah. what i thought about and, too. And, and i think that's what it wasn't until seeing like i never i never even noticed that until today's viewing I'm sure I noticed it, you know, but again, it's so subliminal. It's, it's right. so fast that it's blinking. You miss it. I think that is what created the Mandela effect of people swearing they saw a deleted scene or a cut of the film where you actually see Somerset, you know, open the box and it cuts to Gwyneth's head in the box. Right. They never filmed the fucking, they never sculpted her head. They never filmed the fucking head. It was that, that subliminal flash. That planted this seed in the audience's mind, what, almost 30 years ago? You know, that, that, that some people swear to, nah, I saw the cut, you saw her head in the box. No, you saw an 18th of a second that David Fincher just planted in your fucking brain and it stuck with you ever since. And I thought yeah. that was cool. Um, so, despite Somerset's warnings and enraged Mills fulfills his own role as Wrath, shoots Doe fatally. And repeatedly completing yeah, those plan, <laughs> he empties that fucking chamber into him. Man, <laughs> Somerset yeah. and the police captain watch as the devastated Mills is taken away. When the captain asks where he'll be, Somerset says he'll be around, implying he's not retiring. In a voiceover, he then quotes Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, "The world is a fine place and worth fighting for." I agree with the second part, and that. Is seven 
As voted by our Twisted Film Effect audience, and I had a pleasure talking about this film today. Oh, is that a voted-in movie? I didn't know we voted it in. Oh, nice. I was a, yeah, this was this was a vote. This was on the poll last month. I I asked everyone for uh, to pick a picture film because we haven't done one yet, and oh, everyone voted call. for uh, seven. Yeah, they voted for seven. So nice. All right, good job, guys. We're um, yeah, news to me and Justin, you voted this one in. I'm fucking glad you did. Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah. All right. Um. So how did we get here? Sketch. How did we get here? I led you here, sir. For I am Spartacus. The primary influence for the film's screenplay came from Andrew Kevin Walker's time spent in New York City while trying to make it as a screenwriter. I didn't take my time in New York, but if that's true, but it's true that if I hadn't lived there, I probably wouldn't have written Seven. He envisioned actor William Hurt as Somerset and named the character after his favorite author, W. Somerset Maugham? Mom. Oh, Mom. Yeah, he wrote, for, so for, for the record, um, one of, I know of it, and I've never read any of his stuff, so I'm not going to try to, you know, come off all, you know, hoity-toity, but um, there's a, there, there one piece of work, probably his most famous piece of work that he ever did, uh, was adapted in the early 80s, um, spearheaded by Bill Murray of all people, a film called The Razor's Edge. Yeah, and it's about a guy. This was Murray, like it was when Murray was like at the height of his meatballs and Caddyshack fame, and he wanted. He's like, well, hold on, I got more than just cracking fucking one-liners. I want to do this, you know, dramatic piece. And he was very adamant about adapting W. Somerset Mom's um, Razor's Edge uh, to film. And that that's I've only seen the film once when I was really young, but I was so young I like went into it expecting a Bill Murray movie. And little did I know, my little ten year old brain wasn't grown up enough to wrap my head around it. But that's that that is the author W. Somerset Moore. So, uh, I know he's worked more than Razor's Edge, maybe had other film adaptations, but Bill Murray uh, spearheaded that adaptation of Razor's Edge back in nineteen eighty two. All right, so originally this was going to be directed by Jeremiah S. Shecklin. Chechkin. Chechkin. The director, the Christmas Vacation director. Oh, you say that guy was set to direct this movie? Yeah. During pre-production, Al Pacino was considered for the Detective Somerset role, but he decided to do City Hall instead. Good choice. Denzel Washington (laughs) is... The City well, Hall now, episodes next week, right? <laughs> Voted on by Twitter. <laughs> I had Morgan. And I had to make, I had seven properties and a slip of the yacht club for a boat that had been in receivership for the better part of three years. <laughs> City Hall. Write me a better paycheck. <laughs> Holy shit. Justin loves my Al Pacino impression. Yeah. I, I was laughing at Justin as fucking. Hang <laughs> 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 on, let me collect myself. That was so fucking funny, Justin. Holy shit. Oh my god. 
That's a fucking movie with John Cusack, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. And Bridget Fonda. Oh, God. Yeah. How do you not remember that? One eternity later. <laughs> How do you not remember the classic? The classic. <laughs> I remember City Hall. <laughs> City Hall will remember you. Oh, God. <laughs> I Folks, did. disregard that schedule I posted a couple weeks back. Next week, we're doing City <laughs> And you know what? You know, on the show the whole time. Oh, you guys, how much fun I had. Oh, God. Hang yeah. on. My fucking stomach hurts. Holy I, shit. I had a of... Frankie Coppola's Godfather 3. <laughs> I am legit wiping tears from my eyes. Oh my God. I decided it was time for me to. <laughs> so I decided to do this little film. I walked away from David Fincher's. <laughs> That's it. The rest of the podcast was just doing Pacino impressions. I'll be sitting all day. <laughs> I was going to do City Hall with John Cusack. <laughs> I turned the Twins. See, hey, do you guys think I should do this movie? Uh, <laughs> if we do City Hall, I am covering the entire film as Alpacino. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god if we do city hall i will send you the, the cliff's notes on how to fucking run a podcast because i will not be doing that <laughs> oh shit can i do I, it i'll uh, do an episode of Pacino the entire time what do you think oh man all the more reason not to do that episode <laughs> so to make up for lost shit so, <laughs> i want to get academy awards Santa Award. Oh, God. All right, so Denzel Washington and Sylvester Saloon decided to turn down the role of Mills. Washington later regretted turning down the role. I somehow doubt that. Robert Duvall and Gene Hackman also turned down the role of Somerset. Uh, this was a random fucking tidbit I found out. Christina Applegate turned down the role of Tracy. I'm not sure how much of that I want to believe because she was still hot off of her... Uh, or still in the middle of her married children run. Because that show lasts until like 80 or 98 or something. Yeah, it was she, late 90s. He did a little independent film that had a bit of cred. Um, I think it was called Streets, where she was like like a runaway. Um, like like yes, you're right. She was she was coming off of Kelly Bundy for Married with Children, but she was starting to get a little bit more cred. From a set of playing just the vapid blonde, she did a dramatic turn in a movie called Streets that reminds you a lot of um, a film that uh, Beastie Boys Adam Harvitz did with Donald Sutherland back around the same time called Lost Angels. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. We've also talked about another similar film on here before called Where the Day Takes You. About yeah, what, I, I used to be a big fan of that movie. I haven't seen it in 30 years, but I used to really like that movie a lot. Where the, where the Day Takes You? Yeah. Oh, dude, that's, yeah, I, I, I try to revisit it every couple of years. Yes. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. Mulroney, uh, Ricky Lake, um, uh, John LeGrow, James LeGrow. 
you know. Uh, so yeah, Applegate was getting a, getting a little bit more credit for just Kelly Bundy. So I'm not going to say she would. I, I can't see her as a front runner by any means for the role of Tracy. But the fact that she was considered around the time that that movie Streets or shortly after it come out, I, I'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibility. Gotcha. And then uh, for the role of John Doe, do you guys want to hear who was considered for that? Sure. Uh, yeah, because I found out Spacey wasn't even canceled two days before they started filming. So yeah. Uh, so I have here Ned Beatty, really? Val Kilmer, what? and Michael Stipe. Michael Stipe? Stipe would have been good. Stipe would have been pretty good. Yeah. I can see it. That was the same time. That was 95 when he shaved his head for a uh, monster. Right. So, yeah. Uh, at the uh, the ending of the screenplay with the head in the box was originally part of an earlier draft that New Line had rejected, instead opting for an ending that involved more traditional elements of a detective thriller film with more action-oriented elements. But when yeah, New Line yeah. sent David Fincher the screenplay to review for his interest in the project, they accidentally sent him the original screenplay with the head in the box ending. Yeah, because New Line wanted to end it with like like um, John Doe kidnapping Tracy, and it was kind of like you know a whole nail biter third third act you know chase sequence and shit. And you know when when Pitt and, and Freeman were on contract, and he found out they're like, oh, fuck no, we're filming the end that we signed up for. Fuck that, keeping the head in the goddamn box. Yeah, that that's the kind of movie I thought it was going to be when I saw the you know the trailers and shit. I'm like, oh, I don't need to see another formulate formulate. Uh, right. It was, was going to come down to the cat and mouse thing right up to the very last right. moment, and then you find out, yes, it is a cat and mouse game, but the roles are reversed. Let's let's face it, gentlemen. John Doe is the cat the whole time. Mills and Somerset are the mice. They bend the mice right. under our noses from the from the beginning of the film. We just don't know. This is the beauty of watching this film its first time, you know, is 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 like like we said before, putting those puzzle pieces together and feeling like a detective who's just on the verge of discovery, only to find out you got more shit you still need to discover. Right up until the final seconds and fade to black. <laughs> right. Um at the time Fincher had not read a script for a year and a half since the frustrating experience of making <laughs> Alien 3. <laughs> I guess not. He just got done with Aliens 3. He ain't gonna look at a fucking thing the studio's gonna say. Oh, you're gonna love this quote. He said, I thought I'd rather die of colon cancer than do another movie. <laughs> Fincher eventually agreed to direct Seven because he was drawn to the script, which he found to be a connect-the-dots movie that delivers about inhumanity. It's psychologically violent, it implies so much, not about why you did it, but how you did it. He found it more of a meditation on evil rather than a police procedural. Yeah. Uh, when New Line realized that they had sent the wrong script to Fincher, the president of production, Michael DeLuca, met with Fincher and noted that there was an internal, there was an internal pressure to retain the uh, revised version. DeLuca stated that if Fincher promised to direct the movie, they would be able to stay with the head in the box ending. Despite this, producer Copelson refused to allow the film to include the head in a box scene. Actor Pitt joined Fincher in arguing for keeping the original scene, noting 
that his previous film, Legends of the Fall, had its emotional ending cut after negative feedback from test audiences and refusing to do seven unless the head in the box scene remain. So what, was the original ending for Legends of the Fall Craig Schaefer's head in the fucking box or something? <laughs> or Redford? Uh, Carl, no, Carl Schaefer was his brother in that movie. You're you're, you're thinking of the uh, the fly. Uh, Craig Schaefer. Oh, Craig no, Schaefer runs through it. Never mind. Right, Man, you're right. You're right. Uh, Justin saw where I was going with that. Thank you, Justin, <laughs> for picking up what I was putting down. Um. So yeah, that's uh, how this film came to be. Let's go over to box office receipts and see how the take how. It panned out back in the mid-90s. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. So the film premiered on September 15th, 1995 at the Alice Tully Hall Theater in Manhattan, where it was released a week later to the masses on September 22nd, 1995 from New Line Cinema. It opened up to 2,441 screens, coming in at number one, opening with $13.9 million. Second weekend, it stayed at number one, grossing $12.3 million, only dropping 11.3%. Total, uh, I mean, the, the, the total gross for the film, uh, it closed at $327.3 million against a $33 million budget. I wow, had I no idea this money made the money it made. Right, that's crazy. <laughs> I knew it was a big word of mouth movie. That I, I knew it like had legs and, and stayed around for a few weeks. You know, based yeah, on the word of mouth, I had no idea three hundred. And it was crazy. It, it was one of those ones where, like, if you were smart enough, you knew going into it not to tell too much. You definitely didn't give away the identity of John Doe. You know, to because right. you want your friends and family and coworkers to get the initial feel and shock and all that you had. I mean, let's face it: if there's at least seven or eight bloodstained dollar bills that that Bob Shea counted that fucking fall, they came from me that weekend after getting my ass beat. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a different time because nowadays, like it happens a lot with shows. It's like so a show, like say an episode drops on a Friday. By Friday morning at ten thirty, there's already articles like the amazing twist in this week's episode. It's like, yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ, let people fucking work and come home and watch it before yep. you start like giving shit away like that. It's it's honestly it's so fucking obnoxious. You you know, honestly, gentlemen, I I literally I'm th this reminds me of a moment like like shortly after like when I went and saw this when I was still living in Atlanta, I was at like a house party. I don't know if it was like a football game or something was on. We were just all, it was a bunch of people just hanging out after work, you know, drink some food. And there was a trailer for the movie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I just saw that. And I started to talk about the ending. And another friend of mine who, like, I was like, oh, man, you guys got to see it because, and I was about to say, because Kevin Spacey shows up as, and he actually, like, just kind of, like, shoves me. He's like, come on, dude, we're not supposed to tell people that shit. Like that. They right. Were, you know, mm -hmm. it was still in the theater. You know, see, this was 95. There was, you know, there really wasn't internet. There was movie fan magazines, but they weren't getting early press release screens or stuff. So, like, you had to, the fans kept it amongst themselves. Like, oh, uh, you got to see it. It's great. It's going to, it's going to enthrall you. It's going to surprise you and just wait and see how it ends. 
and that's what got you plumped your ass in the theaters. All right, everybody's telling me I got to get to the end credits. Let me try to get there. Yeah, it was yeah. about two or three weeks after it was out before I saw it. At least it might even been longer. I don't quite remember that, but I was and probably I, two or three. And I, I didn't definitely. have that spacey cameo or, or supporting role spoiled. Like I, you know, that was a surprise. Two or yeah, three weeks after the movie had been a couple months back, and I think that's where. I had recognized Spacey when I saw that. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought I saw him with a British accent and seen him with a evil. I didn't really know like who he was as an actor, but I remember him like, you know, like I was taken aback by his performances, verbal Kent, Kaiser so saying usual suspects. So I took notice and then I got that, you know, gut punch in act three of David Fincher seven. I'm like, holy shit. I'm glad I knew who this guy was beforehand because it worked on me. Because let's face it, if you didn't know that or you just like throw this in, not knowing who anybody is in the industry or does anything, it's not going to work the same. It just doesn't. The reveal just doesn't work the same. Yeah, the killer's finally revealed, but you as an audience being kept in the dark all this time with posters and cardboard standees in the theater and press junkets. And the fact that they kept it under fucking wraps that nobody right. knew he was involved with it until he shows up and says, detectives, I'm the guy you're looking for. And then his, the first name to show up in the end credits, like that worked as like a, a, a fucking, it's almost like a zinger to the audience. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I think I, it really worked in his favor. All right. So biggest takeaways. Mr. Madison, what you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Um, I'll start. My notes here that I have after watching the film. Uh, first one, a nice preview of the fincher Reznor relationship that we still see currently today. My second note is more people should direct shitty alien sequels. <laughs> My third note is Brad Pitt is one sexy son of a bitch. Goddamn, but he's off the goddamn hinges in this movie. His whole entire demeanor is a walking, talking crescendo to an explosion waiting to happen, if that makes sense. That's great, dude. That is great. That is great. I gotta say. For Thank real. Um, Morgan Freeman's voice is the film's soothing factor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and finally, Michael Massey holds himself up really well considering the whole Crow incident that happened only a year prior. The what? He, he killed Brendan Lee. Oh, he was the guy who fired the shot. I didn't yes, that. Michael Madsey uh, was the one who fired the gun. That's fired. why he was like didn't really go anywhere in Hollywood because right. he was just traumatized by this. Oh, shit, I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Uh huh. Wow. So, and this this only came out a year later. So, right. Yeah. Good. Good call. On, good call on all that. For me, um. You're right. I mean, this was the foundation, or still is the foundation for the David Fincher work that we, that we know that, you know, let's face it, the depressing shit that we're fans of. 
you know? I mean, because right. this was just before, I mean, it was, obviously it was, you know, shortly after Alien 3, but before the game, like, David <laughs> raised that bar of um, contemporary, high-minded, adult psychological thriller movies to the point where you gave it a fucking genre now. Like, it's he's got a way of telling that story and keeping the audience on their edge, you know, cause I, the, the guy hasn't directed anything, but I mean, there's, I can't, I can't name a David Fincher film. That's, I mean, Mank is the closest to a drama that I could say, but everything Fincher's done has teetered on the edge of like, you know, let's keep you on the razor's edge of, of, uh, of fucking tension and insanity. I mean, name name me something else a guy's done that that falls that doesn't fall within that that framework. Social network. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, still, you know, you got Eisen Zuckerberg, fucking kind of teetering on 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 that edge. I mean, well, it's, it's, it's a true story that really happened. Well, it's true. Okay. I don't I don't watch the social network thinking, you know, man, I can't wait to get to this depressing ending because it doesn't really end that way kind of like get to a depressing um, ending um and, and you know what i always like i'm not as huge of a fan of that film as you are and i always forget that fincher was involved with it but it was kind of the right look and feel for the tone of the film because when he sets a tone he sets a tone and that tone is gray and that tone is blue and that tone is is is, is, is dreary Right. That's what, much like Seth Rogen t- sets a tone for dick and fart jokes with Judd Apatow and Paul Rudd. You know, Fincher sets a tone for, all right, you're going to think, you're going to feel, maybe not where you want to feel, but I'm going to take you to some emotions and I'm going to give you a visual palette that helps those emotions settle in. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, much like how the Palma plays with his split diopters you know, in his red and blue, you know, you know, uh, color gels, you know, for his backlight filters and stuff. Fincher has a way of setting a visual tone for the film that helps set the emotional tone for the viewer. Am I, am I coming across clear with mm-hmm. that? that yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And, I, and I think this was the foundation for it. Like this was, he finally found the bone that he could chew the meat off of because you had this, you had the game, you had panic room, you had gone girl. You know, they're all very good, you know, movies, but they're, you know, they're again, they're grown up thrillers. And the only person working, you know, in a similar milieu today, fuck, I've said it three times now, milieu today, <laughs> would be Denny Villeneuve. Um, it, Justin, you're up for biggest takeaways. Um, biggest takeaway was, for me, was Brad Pitt. Like I said, going into it was not the biggest fan. I think True Romance was probably the only thing of his that, his only performance that I liked up until that point. Um, I've since I had, it's funny. You mentioned legends of the fall. It's one of those movies. My wife will put on every time it's on. And I, uh. actually, and I actually enjoy it. Like, it's not like torturous to sit there and watch that weather. So, um, uh-huh. like I've gone back and game. I don't know. I still, I, I still don't know that I've ever watched a river runs through it. I just, I don't like Robert Redford as a director. I just don't vibe with his stuff. So I don't think I've ever seen that one, but I, I just didn't, I, I didn't want to like Brad Pitt, but his performance completely won me over in this movie. Um, Morgan Freeman 
already knew he was great, so that yeah. wasn't a surprise. Um, you know, Fincher became a director to keep an eye on after this. So that you know, the two of them were were my biggest takeaways from this. All right. Um, finger looking good. Finger licking good. For for me, any of the film's seven standout moments, I was gonna say. Well, actually, I was gonna say that until I rewatched Spacey's small yet memorable showcase as John Doe, and remember just how fucking good he is in the whole final act. The film really does lead us to the the the, the entire film leads us up to like the 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 final fifteen minutes, and 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 that's just so grand that it's it's worth that build, that slow burn. Um, and I just think it's a standout performance. I, I, yes, I'm sitting here in 2021 saying that fucking Kevin Spacey is just, just the, one of the best things about this film, if not the best thing. Yeah. No shame in that. So next, um, I'd say for my finger looking good. It's, um, it's, I go back to my favorite line in the film, just because a fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. You know, <laughs> it's that scene, the dichotomy, the back and forth between Mills and Somerset, where Somerset is respecting, you know, John Doe and Mills is, I don't know the resenting is the right word, but, but, you know, you know, Mill. You know, Mills has just got a hard on for like vilifying everything and just getting it done, whereas Somerset is like like peering through the cracks. You know, and it's like that. I I guess it's more than just that scene. It's it's their relationship throughout. Like it starts off originally like he, you know Somerset sends Mills out you know, to pound the streets and ask questions at the first, you know, crime scene in the beginning of the movie. And they slowly, you know, congeal because they find camaraderie with each other. Um, right. I can't say there's a particular, because there's so many scenes in this film that are shocking that have stood out to me for the better part of, you know, 30 years now that I can't say one is more horrific than the other. Seeing you know, the gluttonous body all, you know, veins distended face down with spaghetti or, you know, the, the sloth body with the teeth pulling through the rotted skin or that horrendous contraption that Leland Orson's character has to wear, you know, to represent lust. I'm Ugh. like, oh, they just punch me in the gut. Like what I yeah. remember, I can still remember the, the, I remember the look and smell of the theater that I saw this film in at three o'clock on a rainy Saturday afternoon because these moments like just kind of struck me and I had to kind of look around, you know, and gain my bearings to remind myself that, you know, I'm in a make-believe world. So it's not like there's a moment, but there's, there's, it's, 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 for me, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be the, 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 the camaraderie, the, the buildup of the relationship between Mills and Somerset. And then ultimately, I mean, let's face it, a fucking shitty goddamn final scene for Brad Pitt's character, like his denouement 
at the end of this movie where he's just now shaken to his fucking core. Like he is now that fucking rube. He got fucking duped. So maybe for me, the finger looking good moment is his character getting dragged, you know, getting hauled away by that cop car because everything he ever lived for has been taken away from him by the man that he just killed. Who forced him to kill himself? Who forced him to kill? You know what I mean? So that's that. That would be it, man. It's like is is Mills Denoman would be mine. It's like holy fuck. You talk about getting the wind kicked out of you, or, you know, knocked out of you, kicked in the nuts, wind out of your sails. Think about how David Mills feels. He lost his badge. He lost his job. He lost his wife. He's probably going to jail. You know, I'm surprised it hadn't started raining again. How the fuck did we get here from finger looking good? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm fucking going on. I, I, <laughs> I and you can, you ask me. I I can't ever zero in on on one particular moment that is my favorite in films that I love. Like I love them from credit to credit as a whole, like a child. Like I'm gonna ask Justin, hey uh, Justin, what's Max's favorite body part? To you? You're not gonna have an answer. You're gonna be like from the head to the toe. You know what I mean? So that's that's why, and I, I I tend to get along with it. So I'm sorry about that. Edit what you need. <laughs> oh, good moment. No, no, Justin, what's your uh, finger looking good, buddy? Well, my finger looking good is actually similar to Sean's. It's like the the thing I used to love about the movie as a whole, not necessarily one moment, was just the grimness of it and the fucking nihilism and the darkness. And I think, like I said, I think that's good sometimes. I think it's psychologically unhealthy to to shut all that stuff out. So. I like the cumulative effect of that, but this time watching it again, it was the relationship between Mill. It was any scene between Mills and Somerset where they were kind of feeling each other out and getting to know each other. So the conversation after dinner, the, um, the, the conversation in the hallway where they fall asleep, the conversation in the bar towards the end, those are, are on this last viewing, um, the acting between the two, like Morgan Freeman getting to know, I think he does more in these scenes. Brad Pitt kind of plays it the same throughout. And I don't mean that as a, as a negative, but Morgan Freeman, you can kind of see his defenses come down a little bit more in each one of these scenes. And he, and he understands Mills a little bit more, doesn't necessarily agree with him or the way he goes about things, but he understands them a little bit more. And by the end, it seems like a genuine friendship between these two, you know, Forced, forced upon them by these circumstances, but um, it right. seems like gen- genuine caring, caring actually develops to the point where, he, as he's getting taken away in the car, Somerset says anything he needs. You know, like he he genuinely likes it. Yeah, yeah, him. yeah. Yeah, I mean, Christ, if anybody, if, if anybody's going to need a friend by the end of this film, it's David Mills for Christ's sakes. Yeah, the guy's a you know fish out of water, strange in a strange town shitty rainy town christ it rained almost as much as the day prince died or or the month prince died or, <laughs> or as it did in blade runner and the only thing he's got left at this point the only thread he's got hanging on to is william somerset and that's a fucking han solo empire strikes back ending if i ever saw one yeah it's a bleak end all right um it's a moment if you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Um, if I'm being honest, pride got off too easy compared to the other sins of this movie. 
I'd probably change that scene a little bit. Um, it's I don't want to call it rush, but it does happen quickly compared to the other ones where you kind of marinate it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll I'll agree. I'll agree with Justin. I think that's what I think that's what sparked your opinion. But Ken, I, I'd like to ask, what would what do do you have an idea? Like, do you do you have a scene? Would you have done it maybe a different way? No, or, I have to think about it. The same scene or with the same scenario. So, I don't know. I'll have to. I think we're all in agreement that that's, if there's going to be a mulligan moment, that will be it because we're kind of ramping up towards the end of the film at this point. So we rush through that final deadly sin, and what do we get? What does it get? Maybe two minutes of play on the screen. You know, you know, phone and bottle glued to hand, nose cut off. Boom! Let's move on to John Doe and the. I don't even think it's two minutes. I think it's quick as shit. Like when? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty fast. Yeah, it's 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 one scene, and it's it's delivered with a couple. Of, uh, I mean, is there? I don't know. It's, it's an interesting discussion to have. Would would there be a, a, a better way to depict the pride I, in I this? Start to think about that right now. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. I would. You know, honestly, I, that would have been cool if we'd have brought it up beforehand. We could have had this discussion as a, as like an alternate version type thing because I agree with you there. Yeah, the whole thing with pride was kind of rushed over and glossed over just to get us to the, you know, to the third act. But I think there is a better way they could have they could have portrayed and handled that in in the context of the story. I'll agree with you. Um, so it sounds like we're all in agreement for the last couple things. Uh, so, um. Is there anything that you guys want to add to like final thoughts other than the fact that we all collectively think that this is one of Fincher's best and just a, a explosive piece of work that I think I can speak for the two of you guys. We're just collectively happy this got voted and we were able to sit down and watch it and talk about it tonight. Um. No, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it, it, it's, it's a great piece of film. It's not every movie has got to be, you know, a fucking, you know, happy ending tied up with a, you know, with a neat bow at the end. And, it, you know, it, it, it brings us into, it's one of the first films I can remember where I felt that like, Literally, this is one of the first films I can remember where I felt the despair kind of dripping off of the screen that I was sitting, you know, 30 feet away from. Like, I could just feel it oozing towards me. So it's one of those ones where, like, it, it was more than just moving pictures for me. It was more than just, you know, two-dimensional, you know, uh, pictures on a screen and sound out of a speaker where it put me in a mood and you know, that wasn't quite a fucking horror film that had me scared, but it, it, it gave me a different emotion. It didn't give me fear. Like horror movies had given me fear for a couple of years at that point. This film gave me just like, you know, I don't want to say film, but it gave me despair. And let's face it. That's why, that's why we keep going to these things. You know, we, we go to the art, you know, for the feeling the artist can, you know, can and coach out of us because we know that we're safely in a room where the lights are going to come up soon. And eventually that feeling is going to be lifted. 
And this is one of the first times at 21 years old where I can remember, like, now granted, I was in a pretty <laughs> desperate mood at, at, at my first viewing anyway, given the story I told. But, like, I, I, like, like, I, I can't remember a film that, like, oozed that emotion or, or, or just the, the emotional setting that was being put into play. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not like a jump scare horror movie, but it's got something that's got you thinking. And between the sound and the look and the feel, like you just never feel comfortable. But you got to keep going. You bought your ticket. You got to take the ride. You're sitting in the seat. You got to stay with the credits roll. You know, you took the job. You got to solve the case. And Fincher did it in 95 to at least this 21 year old kid. I didn't realize that, that I could find a, you know, another sense, you know, being out of emotion, you know, outside of, you know, visual and oral, but a few Mm -hmm. times in the theater. And this is one. All right. Well, this episode is sponsored by the Bible. Because some of you motherfuckers need it in your lives. <laughs> All that being said, this film definitely gets the film effects seal of approval, and that will bring things home for this edition of the show. One down, many more to follow. If you enjoyed this episode and want to continue to support the show, then please do so by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever accessible. It helps with the algorithm and definitely helps us grow so more people can check us out. While you're at it, check out our website at podpage.com where you'll find our ever-growing collection of previous episodes and buy some merch from tpublic.com slash user slash film effect podcast. Some new designs coming soon, including a limited design for our upcoming Halloween Horathon. This Monday, guys, we will be back talking about, well, it's a big one. Carpenter's the thing, and I cannot Ooh. wait to dive into this. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, it's going to be an awesome fucking episode. Um, got some guests lined up for it. It's also just a film that I, I, I've i seen numerous times growing up, and it's uh, I haven't had too many conversations about it with uh, fellow fans, so this will be a good one. And uh, I'm excited. So, yeah, check out that next Monday. Uh, in the meantime, we also have Halloween 6 and H2O coming out. I know H2O is going to be special. Uh, it's going to be featuring a special guest uh, spot from Josh uh, from your next favorite movie. He'll be joining us for that one. So, uh, yeah, good things coming up. Like I said, guys, uh, we're just going to be chock full of episodes. Don't forget to keep an eye out for that City Hall episode. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Yeah. Next week on the show, we'll be back with City Hall with yeah. Al Pacino and John Cusack. You guys know I love my John Cusack. <laughs> that might be the only 90s John Cusack movie I didn't see. Yeah, I, I've never seen it myself, so don't feel bad. Um, so, yeah, uh, that was the website. Uh, that was the merch store. Uh, Sean, Facebook, Instagram. Yeah, it's going to be actually... Um, Sean had to go to the bathroom. Jesus Christ. <laughs> he asked me to step in and uh, give you guys some promos on those social media sites. Just tell us how to fucking find us on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> That's going to be the Phil Effect Pocket. How about the fucking Twitter? I believe, from what Sean told me, 
That is at Film Effect Pod. All right. And I'm afraid to ask email. <laughs> you can send those digital letters over to uh, www.thefilmeffectpodcast.gmail.com. And I bet you're not going to take us out with that same fucking voice, are you? <laughs> I'm not. I'm sorry. I just had to do my potato. No, no, no. You're going to commit, motherfucker. You were going to commit. You were going to take us out as Pacino. So, all right. So, you, you, you all right. I'm going to leave it up to Justin. Justin, you're, you're, you're our special guest host this week. Would you rather me or Al Pacino sign us out? Ooh, man. Seriously? Let's hear, let's hear some Pacino. <clears throat> all right, man. We shall see you again next time. <laughs> we'll see the lights go down. <laughs> Opening credits. Begin the room. Uh, this has been another edition of the Film Effect Podcast. For myself, Sean, and Justin, stay safe out there. Enjoy the rest of your day. And until next time, it's been fun, but now it's done. <laughs> what did you say? I said, don't forget your buddy Al. He's been sitting in the whole <laughs> John Dole's got the upper hand now. <laughs> <laughs> What's in that fucking box? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what is All in guys. fucking box? Oh, uh, shit. Until next week with The Thing or one of the Halloween episodes. City Hall. Uh, yeah. City Hall. Don't sleep on it. Until next week with City Hall. <laughs> this has been another edition of the film effect. <laughs> Check you guys later. Yeah, check you later. This is some fun shit. <laughs>